Tired of your insinuations that I'm not master of this craft? Oh, I admit you did develop a fault to minor fault. On one occasion, perhaps twice. But nothing I couldn't control. Of course you're in control. And I'm sure you could revisit us at any time. Very simple. You may not find the time. There's a chance that we won't meet again. Don't you think it would be better if we parted under more friendly circumstances? Say, over a drink? Welcome to Who Worth Watching, where we're going through this 50-year-old show from the beginning to determine what's still worth watching for a modern audience. As for today's offering, by the end, we can only hope you'll say it was the best of podcasts, it was the worst of podcasts. And now, I'm the lonely jail warden who spends too much time watching Doctor Who and locks up the haters in one of my special cells. My co-host is Guy, who is leading a revolution of the citizens, that is, the normal people, with the apparent goal of killing as many normal people as he can once he's in charge. I guide us through the series, and Guy makes the final determination of what's worth watching for normal people. Hello, Guy. Hello, Ron. So have you seen the Madame Guillotine action lately? I hear it's the hottest show in town. I prefer the gallows. It leaves more to the imagination. (laughs) So we're on the last story of the first season of Doctor Who. Unfortunately, as we discussed last week, you won't find this one on BritBox. Two of the episodes were lost and have been replaced now with animated versions, but apparently the BBC doesn't have the rights to stream those. You can find it on other streaming services, or you can get the DVD. We're using the DVD for our discussion. And while we don't cover lost shows that only have still picture reconstructions, I find the animated ones to be quite acceptable, so I think it's fine for us to include them. One unfortunate thing here is even the ones that are live action here, it it looks to me like they probably lost the actual tapes because it looks to me like they have recordings from a television or something. It's, Mm. It's not great quality, unfortunately. It's good enough. Yeah, it works. On that cheery note, let's get to the first episode, A Land of Fear. Well, we're still not home. No, we're not, are we? Still, I do think he tried this time, even if it was out of bad temper. So we stay with the ship? Yes. Cheered Susan up, hasn't it? Well, are you disappointed? Mm. Funny enough, no. I don't know. Depends where we are. I still could be. Starts off not with the crew, but with a view of a countryside somewhere. There are two men in cloaks, sort of walking or perhaps sneaking through some trees. They pass out of the view of the camera, and then the TARDIS appears in the trees. Inside the TARDIS, the doctor is here with the rest of the crew. At the end of the last episode, he was pretty miffed. Now he isn't really overtly angry. He's a little cold, though. (laughs) He tells Susan to say her goodbyes. Susan hugs Barbara and Ian, then runs away in tears. And she did say before in another episode that she didn't like long goodbyes. I did want to mention about the TARDIS showing up. It shows up silently. Mm. And this is one of those things I think they just never totally settled on. Like over time, it'll always have, you called it the lawnmower (laughs) sound when it shows up or goes away. But they're still, I think they just still don't know. And they just do something random. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't catch that on this one. So, Ian 
isn't quite ready to leave the TARDIS yet because the doctor hasn't done his normal checks on the air quality, the radiation, and all those other things that he normally does. The doctor says there's no need. He feels pretty good about it. <laughs> he's not going to be leaving the TARDIS, so he's fine putting them at risk, I guess. Oh, sure. <laughs> They take a look at the viewer and to see what's going on outside. They see trees and fields and crops. Barbara thinks it could possibly be somewhere in England. It reminds her of a vacation she took in Somerset. And the doctor says, that I expect it is Somerset, my dear. <laughs> Very optimistic about his abilities here. Ian and Barbara remind him that the last time the doctor thought they were home, they met Marco Polo. <laughs> Well, would you rather go home or meet Marco Polo? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, depending on how tired I was, I guess. <laughs> the doctor, he's, he's a little defensive. He says it did develop a fault, a minor fault, on one occasion, perhaps twice, but nothing I couldn't control. <laughs> Psychologically, I feel like he's in this situation we all get in once in a while, maybe when we're arguing with one of our loved ones, where we kind of realize we're wrong, but <laughs> we're... <laughs> We're too far in to admit that. <laughs> yeah, that could be. <laughs> Ian has an interesting strategy here. He lays on the charm. And he says, of course you're in control. You're always in control. It's really rather obvious, but <laughs> doctor seems to eat it up. Right, and Barbara starts stroking his shoulder. I mean, they really lay it on. <laughs> He mentions that the doctor has researches to complete and may not find the time to ever visit them again. So he asks, don't you think it would be better if we parted under more friendly circumstances, say over a drink? Well, the doctor is okay with this. He thinks it's a decent idea. And so they all, all four of them, leave the TARDIS. They exit the TARDIS into the midst of a forest, not a real thick forest, just sort of light probably a tree line amidst all the farm fields. But as with many of the sets on Doctor Who, it's kind of close up. You don't have a broad panorama. They have the little sound stage. Susan asks, why aren't there any lights? It is dusk, as Ian points out. They'd expect if there was any kind of village nearby, they'd see some kind of lights. The Doctor has no patience for that. He just asks if we're going to stand here talking all night. <laughs> so it is becoming a thing with him. Mm -hmm. There's a noise in the bushes nearby. Ian sneaks off to check it out, and he returns with a young lad. The Doctor asks him, where do you live? <laughs> Barbara observes that the boy is absolutely terrified, but she very kindly and gently says, we've lost our way. We need your help. This is England, isn't it? And the boy says, no, France. <laughs> it turns out they're 12 kilometers from Paris, which is about seven and a half miles. One thing I like about this kid is both he looks great and he does a good job as a kid actor. And he looks like a really downtrodden farmer's kid and his shirt is all ripped up and everything. I mean, this is definitely a very realistic portrayal of somebody in a not great economic circumstance. <laughs> mm -hmm. Oh yeah. The doctor, upon hearing the distance to Paris, he says, a uh, hundred miles or so either way is to be expected. It's quite accurate. In fact, <laughs> <laughs> which I think he has a point, you know, how close do you yeah. want him to get? Yeah. 
Although I think Paris, I, I looked it up, I think Paris is more like 300 miles from London. Yeah. But, you know, <laughs> so he was whatever. underplaying it. Ah, <laughs> yeah. The, the boy, we see him running towards a, an old rundown farmhouse. He knocks on the door. It opens, a hand emerges, and drags him inside. But generally, it's more like sort of guiding than grabbing. On a path toward the farmhouse, Barbara sees it and thinks it looks deserted, and she is fairly certain, presumably from the architecture, that there's some time in the past. And Ian says, well, we were a hundred miles out, perhaps we're a hundred years out. Mm -hmm. And then he says something that's very perceptive, I think. He says, I think we ought to get back to the ship while we still can. <laughs> but of course they don't. The doctor and Susan go on ahead. Barbara and Ian hang back for a moment to talk. Ian's a little philosophical about it. He says, I do think he tried this time, even if it was out of bad temper. And as for disappointment, he says, I don't know. Depends where we are. I still could be. And the spoiler, <laughs> he will be disappointed. <laughs> Pretty substantially. This is essentially a repeat of the conversation that Barbara and Ian had at the beginning of the Daleks. But even though they're talking about exactly the same thing, it has a completely different tone. So at the beginning of the Daleks, when they didn't really know the Doctor very well, they were pretty angry, and Barbara even fantasized about something bad happening to the Doctor. Oh, yeah. Well, I suppose we'd better make sure he doesn't fall down and break a leg. Don't you ever think he deserves something to happen to him? Yes. And this time around, they're kind of like, ah, okay. <laughs> like, they're in a very different place than they were that time. Yeah, good point. <laughs> so we see in the yard of the farmhouse, which is, it's not a huge set, but it's big enough that they can shoot some scenes later on from different angles. It's sort of an angle in the house with a door and some windows and, oh, you know, some posts and a ladder and hay and whatnot. It's uh, not a huge set, but it's good enough for what it needs to do. The doctor's looking around while Ian's trying to see through the window, but it's too dark in there. But the doctor finds a, a door that's unlocked. So next thing you know, they're all inside. <laughs> There's two candlesticks, or in the first things they find, the doctor lights them both and takes one to search upstairs. Barbara and Ian search a chest, and they find some clothes. She observes correctly that these clothes are 18th century. And this is consistent, like we saw in the Aztecs, Barbara, as the history teacher, immediately knew what year it was. Right. And so it, this is a nice little thing where this is what she does, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, apparently a pretty decent history teacher. In the chest, they find clothes and food, and then some daggers. It's very convenient that the clothes fit their very different bodies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And ultimately, they find some documents. They're fairly official looking, and they have some blanks on them that have yet to be filled out. Ian speculates that this is a uh, place for people to stop off when they're escaping, kind of like an underground railroad station. Barbara looks at one of the documents, and she says, This is signed by Robespierre. <laughs> Ian is skeptical for about five seconds, and then... After looking at the documents more closely, he says, the doctors put us down right in the middle of the French Revolution. <laughs> My note here, no one ever expects the French Revolution. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
And Barbara echoes his statement. She says, yes, the reign of terror. And the way she says it, she's not expecting a good time. Yep, yep. And she may be right about that. And then the next scene, we get this episode's concussion. The doctor is searching upstairs, and he gets knocked in the back of the head. We've seen many cases already in these Doctor Who stories of people getting whacked on the back of the head and and immediately falling over. And before this, they always look really fake. This one actually looks really good. It looks like a good whack, and he goes down, you know, really fast. So I was impressed. Yeah. yeah. So while that's happening to the doctor, downstairs, the whole group is getting dressed with the contemporary clothes. They're hoping that while they're traveling back to the ship, they'll be less conspicuous. Susan observes that they may not get back to the ship if Grandfather, the doctor, Here's that they're in the reign of terror because it's his favorite period in the history of Earth. And this is another moment of actual continuity from the very debut episode where uh, Susan mentioned that. So what happened was she was reading a book about the reign of terror that Barbara gave her. So she didn't say at the time that it was his favorite because they hadn't even met the doctor yet. Oh, okay. As we discussed at the time... It's one thing to be interested in reading about it, but the idea that he'd be like, oh, goody, I'm not going to leave. It's the reign of terror. It's a little hard to, <laughs> uh, a little hard to understand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Although, given what the doctor's done in the past, it's not entirely implausible either. <laughs> Ian decides he's going to go look for the doctor who has been away a little too long. And when he goes to the doorway to the stairs, there are two men standing in the doorway, and they're armed. One of them says, don't move, and he asks why they're here. The other one has a more pragmatic approach. He <laughs> says, don't waste time, kill them. He assures them they're not their enemies. This other man, who will find his name is Rouvray, he makes a good point. He says, when you entered our hideout, you entered our lives. He asks if they're traveling alone. Barbara says yes. It was the very last story where lying about whether they were traveling alone caused problems. So you'd think maybe they would have learned by now <laughs> not to do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Although, devil's advocate here, I could see if I was down there with three of the four people in my group, and I was under pressure and whatnot, I might have just instinctively answered, well, yes, I mean, we're not like part of an army or something. You know? <laughs> not thinking of the doctor being upstairs. So that mm-hmm. But yeah, the men do interpret it as a lie. Rouvray says, uh, we found the old man upstairs. Don't count on his assistance at the moment he's safe. It was in your power to see that he came to no harm. But your answer proves you do not speak truthfully. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So once again, they're in Dutch. Then the other man, he's a more nervous sort of fellow on that. That doesn't improve as time goes by. (laughs) He says, we must be leaving. The soldiers are on their way. Barbara says, we have no side. We're not even French. (laughs) Rivray says, if you intend to stay in France, you will have to choose. Although he does immediately put his gun away and sort of take them at their word. So he's a very trusting guy, Rouvray. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He doesn't seem too hostile now, even though he interpreted what they just said as a lie. Oh, well, you'll have that. <laughs> they hear these men emerging from the forest, and they are the soldiers that this other guy, Darjan Song, was expecting. He says they'll take them to Paris, the guillotine. 
He actually is a pretty good reason for worrying about this, because he goes on to say his whole family was executed, even his younger sister. So he's been through a little bit of trauma. Mm -hmm. Rouvray gives Ian his spare pistol. To the best of my recollection, we never ever see him do anything with this. Well, yeah, they're supposed to sh like shoot out the window at the soldiers, but they don't really get around to that. <laughs> <laughs> As the soldiers arrive on the scene, the background music, the atmospheric music, you hear a few notes of the Marseillaise, which is... Even today, it's the French national anthem, but it was also the anthem of the revolution. It would be the guilty for all of us! Then that theme will recur again and again in the next episodes. I tend to not notice the music that much, although overall, as I've said before, in general, they actually do a pretty good job on the music in all of the Doctor Who stories. Hmm. At least yeah. up to now. There will be times in the future where we might have a different opinion about that. No, all right. <laughs> <laughs> Out in the farmyard, a group of soldiers is looking around. There's a lieutenant who has a pretty sinister uniform. He's got a cloak and he has a cape over the cloak. Then he's got a black bicorn, just kind of a dark, shady-looking individual. And his sergeant also has a bicorn, but it's a fancier uniform. It looks yeah. like it would be more colorful, although you know, we're, we just see him black and white. He's got big, heavy epaulets on his shoulders. It's a little more ostentatious. The sergeant is giving the lower-level soldiers orders. One of the soldiers throws his orders back in his face, and the other soldiers <laughs> laugh. I like the way he does it, which becomes significant as we go along. He says, citizen, right? You know, you go do it, citizen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The citizen does become a recurring theme throughout this. It's the way they all, they all address each other to emphasize that they're all participating in the egalite, <laughs> even though uh, there's really not a whole lot of that. I think this is actually a really important little bit here because these soldiers, by being kind of uppity and throwing the word citizen back in the other folks' faces, they're showing like, look, not everybody buys into this. Mm -hmm. And some people are actually willing to just kind of speak their mind, even though usually that's going to give you a short life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But the sergeant seems to know a thing or two about maintaining discipline. He points out to the sassy soldier that if these escapees run and he's around the back watching the door, then he'll have the chance of stopping them. And the soldier says, yes, it's a long time since I had a royalist to myself. <laughs> so that was all it took to get him motivated. <laughs> Inside, Rouvray notices that they haven't made a move on the house and he speculates correctly that that intention is to break their nerve and here we get a very interesting little performance from his partner in crime darju song we get a close-up of him he's fidgeting he's licking his lips rolling his eyes mm -hmm. just generally looking stupid he's freaking out <laughs> yeah he's portraying terror and time passes we see that he is still acting weird just standing flat up against the wall He's trying to convey fear, but he really looks like he's just hopped up on something real bad. <laughs> it's almost disconcerting. Ian says, it seems the soldiers followed you. Who knew you were taking this road? 
Yes, and, and this little comment is very perceptive early on from Ian, right? <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, it, it will be a little pertinent later, I think. <laughs> and Rouvray says, who indeed, it's difficult to have secrets these days. Susan expresses her worry about the doctor. Rouvray points out that he's uh, upstairs somewhere. So Ian heads up there, and as soon as Ian does that, Darjun San has gotten to the point of total freakout, and he runs for the door. He has some idea in his head that he can surrender to the soldiers, and then he'll be okay. <laughs> yeah, not a terrific idea, but <laughs> anyway, Rouvray calls after him, come back, you fool, you fool. <laughs> Yeah, gonna, unfortunately, he doesn't do it with quite the same intonation that the uh, doctor did last time. <laughs> yeah, but from now on, whenever we run into you fool, you can bet that <laughs> you'll get to hear that. You fool! <laughs> <laughs> Out in the farmyard, Darjan San is standing there trying to surrender. Rouvray comes out the door behind him, and the lieutenant, the more sinister-looking guy, recognizes him. Rouvray says very commandingly, You'll listen to me. He steps in front of his partner. The lieutenant says, So, Rouvray, your voice still carries authority, even to my soldiers. Rouvray gives an order to one of those nearby soldiers, Come here, give it to me. He takes the soldier's musket and just throws it right down to the ground. <laughs> and I don't understand the next part. <laughs> he says, You can give them uniforms, lieutenant, but they remain peasants underneath which seems to me a huge strategic blunder. <laughs> they were leaning towards his side, apparently, and now he's just insulted them. On that note, one of them shoots him. I don't know. Maybe one of the people did feel insulted when they shot him. I, I have no idea why he would have said that when he had control of the situation and then he just insults the people who were helping him. I don't know. Yeah, it, it may be that he didn't even see it as an insult he was yeah. he was just trying to say they're good joes but the class distinction rubbed him the wrong way or something <laughs> the first time i saw this story i was shocked at this point because Ray is a good actor a good looking guy who's shown up at the beginning and been commanding in your typical doctor who story you know that he's going to be there throughout the story ah okay and literally within a couple of minutes they kill him <laughs> and I think that that's actually really important in this story because they tell you right up front, nothing can be taken for granted. Anyone could die. This is the French Revolution. <laughs> oh, yeah. It was good. It surprised me. So he has discovered that though they may be peasants, they can at least understand a point-and-click interface. <laughs> and then the soldiers grab Darjan Son, and then they shoot him, too. And they have a good laugh about it. Yeah. So, there's not a lot of appreciation of the value of human life around here. <laughs> yeah. Upstairs in the farmhouse, Ian's looking for the doctor. He tries the door to a locked room, but he's interrupted by something that we haven't seen much before. Susan screams. <laughs> <laughs> so he rushes downstairs. This time, Susan had very good cause to scream because the soldiers have come into the farmhouse. They grab Ian and take his weapon that he never got around to using. <laughs> he starts to protest, and the lieutenant orders, if any of them speak again without permission, shoot them. Unlike some shows I've seen, some other shows that aren't Doctor Who, these characters are smart enough to shut up 
and they all head outside to the farmyard, where Ian, Susan, and Barbara are lined up against a wall. Where this is leading, you can probably guess. <laughs> They're going to get shot. But the lieutenant and the sergeant make a good counter-argument to the soldiers who are very eager to do the shooting. They say there may be a reward for these people. Then the lieutenant says, besides, why should we do what Madame Guillotine can do so much better? <laughs> so they have saved Ian, Susan, and Barbara's lives for now, not through any particular kindness, but just to see if they can get something out of it. Greed, or at least getting to see their heads cut off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. As the whole passel of them departs the farmyard, the sergeant says, wait, we'll burn the house down. <laughs> and there's almost certainly no reward for doing that, but it is a nice little team building exercise, I think, so... He throws a torch, and just briefly, it cuts to a flying torch in the air that's been pre-filmed, uh, presumably, it looks like mm -hmm. it to me. Then it lands in some hay and starts burning. Then we get a more zoomed-out shot that's a model of the farmyard, a pretty obvious model. If I had to put a number on it, I'd guess it was O-scale. The flames are pretty big that's what gives it a part of what gives it away is the flames they don't look like flames on that scale should look yeah. way too big both fire and water do not work at miniature scales right it never looks right and right. there has to be some physics that is determining that and even with cgi and even with the decades and decades of huge amount of efforts on making both fire and water work They've only maybe recently gotten to something pretty realistic. And there are still directors who will insist on doing explosions with actual gasoline and, and, you know, that sort of thing, because they say CGI just never looks quite right with an explosion. So it's really well, tough. Sure. Yeah. Yep. And I can vouch for a lot of the AAA video games that come out, even in the last couple of years, a lot of the time they still don't get those things right. I mean, yep, not quite yep. right. Good enough, but not quite right. Upstairs in the farmhouse, now that the fire started, the doctor is surrounded by smoke. And he calls for help. Nobody hears him because they're already heading down the road. At this point, the companions, now that they've been sentenced to the guillotine, they figure they may as well speak. I've got nothing to lose. Hey. Barbara says, the house, look at the house. And we get a zoomed out view of the model, which shows us the whole house, and it's really burning now. This actually looks a little better to me than the zoomed in version we had before, but the flames are still out of proportion. Yeah, it's clearly about five inches high. <laughs> <laughs> she reassures Susan, not terribly convincingly, that I'm sure he got out, Susan. And Ian says, I hope so, for all our sakes, which uh, is a good point because the doctor operates the TARDIS. Yeah, and it comes back again to that debate they had had before the Daleks, where they're stuck with the fact that he's really the only person who can operate the TARDIS. So even now, even though they care about the Doctor a lot more than they did back then, at the end of the day, it comes down to, we're screwed if he's gone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's still got him by the short hairs. <laughs> so as they march off with the army, Jean-Pierre, the young boy from before, he emerges from the bushes again. We get back to what's going on in the upstairs in the farmhouse, and we see, locked in the upstairs room, a charred skeleton in plaid pants. <laughs> oh, I'm teasing. The doctor's fine, but 
Not totally fine because he pounds on the door a little more and he succumbs to smoke. And then to add insult to injury, the roof caves in. And that's <laughs> where we end this episode. Yep, it's a cliffhanger. <laughs> okay, next up will be Guests of Madame Guillotine. I am satisfied as to your guilt as being in the company of wanted traitors. The sentence, immediate execution. We demand the right to speak. You have no rights. You will be guillotined as soon as it can be arranged. The house is on fire. The doctor is in mortal danger. And now, very unusually, maybe almost unique for a Doctor Who cliffhanger, we don't get to immediately see how he gets out of his situation. Instead, we switch to Paris. Hmm. And I, I liked how they did this. They showed a nice historic drawing of Paris. It is a nice drawing. I would have preferred if they had actually done a matte painting or something, but oh well, <laughs> it's a good drawing. Yeah, you know, budget. <laughs> there is a guillotine image, which to me looks like a drawing, and it's very stylized, and we just have a still shot on this, and we hear a crowd cheering. And then at some point, suddenly, the guillotine drops, and clearly someone has had their head chopped off, and mm -hmm. I'm not 100% sure whether it was a drawing or actual film. I think it may have been actual film, just in a highly stylized way, but I don't know. Yeah, that, I, I got the impression it was an actual filmed scene, but I could be wrong. Yeah, but it looked really cool. <laughs> so, yeah. And we go to the concierge prison. Concierge Ringy. <laughs> <laughs> and this one's the main prison of the revolution. You know, normally, if you think of France and the revolution, the Bastille might be the first prison that comes to mind. But actually, very early on, the Bastille was ruined by all the filthy peasants. So this was the prison that was used during the actual power of the people. Hmm. Wikipedia says the conciergerie was full of rats and at stake of wee-wee. <laughs> and both of those things will be mentioned later on in this episode. Again, pretty, this is overall a pretty realistic portrayal. So we see the crew in front of a magistrate. It's actually kind of funny how we see the crew because we see Barbara and Susan. And then later in a separate shot, we see Ian because starting with the second episode of the story, the actor for Ian, William Russell, was on vacation. In fact, ironically, he was in France. And so they pre-filmed all of his stuff. Unusually, what they did was they filmed a bunch of stuff with him, and then they just kind of chose where to put it in the different episodes. And in the documentary for this story on the DVD, William Russell says he didn't know until these decades later, you know, literally 40 plus years later, when he watched it on DVD, he didn't even know that he was in every single episode. <laughs> <laughs> they had just spread out his material and they actually do a pretty good job at it as we'll talk about as we go along. But hmm. here it's kind of weird because you get this shot of Barbara and Susan and then you get this separate shot of Ian, but they're supposed to be standing right next to each other. We have a clearly kind of overworked magistrate and he's looking at some paperwork and Barbara demands the right to speak. <laughs> he lets her know you have no rights and looks at his paperwork and says, clearly you've been consorting with traitors. The sentence is immediate execution. Let's just get it done. <laughs> so the crew is going to be guillotined as soon as possible. They'll be put in some cells just long enough to hold them over. 
So they're taken off to the cells. We meet the prison warden, who's going to be a friend of ours for a while. <laughs> he shows up a lot. And he's a, a kind of jolly guy. And he sees Barbara, and he kind of likes how she looks and lets mm. her know that as a prison warden, he's kind of lonely. And he could do things for her if they were to be friends. <laughs> and she doesn't take this well, and she slaps him. And I'm going to say, I understand, but maybe not the greatest idea. <laughs> yeah. You know, I had the same reaction and I can't put myself in her shoes, but it might've bought a little time. If she said, uh, let me think it over. Or something. Yeah. She could have at least played yeah. a little hard to get. <laughs> <laughs> and the warden is rubbing his jaw and he says, you will regret that. I promise you. And she gets to immediately regret it because they're about to put Barbara and Susan in one of the normal cells. And he says, no, 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 put them in one of my special cells for my special guests. So, yeah already made it harder for themselves. <laughs> right. Once they're in there, Barbara says this cell reminds her of the caveman story. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Although it doesn't have all the split skulls lying around. Yeah. And it does have a window, which is nice. Yep. Now we switch back to the doctor. The boy from the first episode is hovering over him and he has some water and apparently he saved him. We don't know exactly what he did. And actually, you know, for a boy of that size to drag the doctor out would have been a little bit of a surprise, but you know, apparently he's pretty resourceful. He's a farm boy. Yeah. And he is being really helpful. He says, look, you can escape. My mother will give you some food. Our farm is right over there. The doctor says, no, I must rescue my friends. I mean, you rescued me. You must understand I need to rescue my friends. And even though this is a relatively short scene, there's a lot of chemistry between these two, and they seem to get along very well. Hmm. In general, for William Hartnell, the doctor, in this whole story, he seems to be kind of on top of his game. He's not messing up his lines. He seems very energetic. I think he does a pretty good job, at least so far. I've only seen the first three of the episodes, but he has some good moments. Pretty entertaining. And so the doctor heads off to meet his friends in Paris. We get our first official shot outdoors sequence in Doctor Who, where we see the doctor walking along a path with his cane and some yeah. trees along the side of this path. <laughs> if I'm not mistaken, I think this is called second unit footage. What, yep. What we're seeing here. It's shot by another group away from the whole main production. I have a theory we'll see about. I, I think... This is not William Hartnell. The hair doesn't look quite right. <laughs> yeah, it's not. And it's funny because on the documentaries where the actors say, oh, you know, you can't tell the difference. Like, no, you can tell because the, the, the <laughs> wig is very poofy. But a funny thing about this, they wanted to have him do it, but the producers refused to release him from rehearsal. They had to go find some spot way out in the countryside in England in order to shoot this. And they just didn't have time to send William Hartnell out there to do these shots. They needed him hmm. for what they were doing. So they had another guy do it. They actually took it very seriously. And he spent a bunch of time following William Hartnell around in the rehearsals yeah. so that he could learn how he walked. And hmm. it was really pissing off William Hartnell. <laughs> He's like, get away from me. You're annoying me. <laughs> So the weird thing is for putting in all that time because they wanted to get his walk right, they then put this big poofy wig on him. He doesn't look anything <laughs> like <laughs> the doctor, so there's no question that it's not him. It just seems a little funny. <laughs> yeah. We go back to the cells. Barbara and Susan are here. Susan is feeling very down for some reason. <laughs> in a cell, about to be decapitated. 
Barbara is a little more energetic. She starts looking for ways to get out of the cell. Susan doesn't feel like there's anything they can do. Barbara pulls off the bedding from the bed and starts grabbing one of the pieces of wood, the planks there, to use it as a lever to get rocks out of the wall. So she's thinking they're going to dig their way out of the wall. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, we switch to the guards putting another prisoner in a cell. I like the line he has here. He says, don't make so much noise. You'll give the place a bad name. (laughs) So now we switch to a pre-filmed segment with Ian, and he's got this cellmate who's bleeding to death from having been shot. And the cellmate has a little speech here. He says, you know, he, he's English. He says, one day soon, France is going to stop this madness, and then they're going to turn their attention across the channel, and we must be ready for that day. And I, I found this really interesting, and it wouldn't surprise me if it was true that England really was thinking about, okay, at some point, they're going to try to attack us. Let's start getting spies in place. Let's get this all figured out and if that's true Mm. i think that's kind of interesting but uh but i don't know yeah and the cellmate says there's a man in france an englishman working for that end he will tell us when the day is near and he knows he's about to die so he tells ian find him if you can his name is james sterling so ian says to the cellmate where shall i find james sterling Now the cellmate mumbles some stuff that actually was, for me, very hard to hear. I I wouldn't be able to tell what it was, but if you go by subtitles in the script, he says, Jules Renan, the sign of Le Chiffre. Le Chien Gris. (laughs) The gray dog is what it means. I do not speak French. I I know a very little vocabulary. That's it. (laughs) (laughs) And now we're back to the doctor walking to Paris. He's doing a lot of walking to Paris. I guess it's a little ways away. And he comes across a work team. We don't know if these are prisoners or what. We'll find out. But they're all breaking up rocks in the road. And there's a foreman overseeing them. Being a foreman, he's not really doing any work. And the doctor goes to the foreman and says, I'm bound for Paris. Am I still on the right road? And the foreman says, you've come a long way. (laughs) It's one of those funny little lines of Doctor Who. The doctor says, yes, further than you would think. (laughs) (laughs) And then the doctor sits down on a rock and everything seems okay. He's just going to sit there and watch them while they're breaking up rocks. And then the foreman lets him know that the workers here are all tax dodgers. So they are effectively prisoners. And he's responsible for getting this section of the road finished by tomorrow. And the doctor gives some very helpful advice that turns out not to be a great idea. I'm sure you're very experienced at this job, my man. But as an impartial onlooker, I think I might have a bit of advice to give you. Well, I'll listen to anything that'll get this job finished quickly. Well, if you were to expend your energy helping with the road instead of bawling and shouting at them every few seconds, you might be able to get somewhere. Good day to you, sir. (laughs) Yeah, and this will be a lesson in why you save your smart remarks for when you're not on your way to save your friends from the guillotine. (laughs) The foreman has a gun. That's why he's able to keep everyone in line. And he says to the doctor, I suppose you think you're very clever. This is a very doctor line. Without any undue modesty, yes. (laughs) (laughs) That was a good one. Yeah. And now the foreman wants his papers and decides that he is worthy to break rocks. and Conscripts him onto the team and threatens him with the gun. So the doctor has kind of screwed himself. Yeah. And then we're back to the prison cells. Barbara is working to dig out the cell wall stones. Susan takes over, but she immediately hurts herself. And then the warden comes in and they cover up the holes they've been digging with blankets from the bed. 
and the warden puts down food bowls, but he notices the blankets on the floor. And he says, I'm responsible for everything in the cell. Put the blankets back. And he starts to remove the blankets from the floor, which will reveal what they've been doing. But then someone yells out for him and he takes it very seriously. And he says, coming citizen. So this is clearly someone he's scared of. <laughs> As we'll learn, the person he's scared of then goes into Ian's cell and he asks Ian how long the cellmate has been dead. Ian says several hours citizen, you know, he's a little bit ironic about it, I think. And then he lies and says the cellmate didn't say anything to him. So the citizen leaves and then talks to the warden and he asks the warden if he overheard the cellmates talking and the warden says he did hear them talking. The citizen now asks for the execution list and he strikes out Ian's name from the execution list. So this is very interesting. We're back to Barbara and Susan in their cell. They've been eating the terrible food. They've discovered you know, just what they can eat if they get really hungry. And Susan starts to do the digging out of the stones, but then she sees rats and she freaks out and she jumps on the bed and says, Barbara, there's rats down there. And she does the normal <laughs> Susan scream. Yeah. And we don't get to see the rats. That is, <laughs> that, that, I mean, they could have just gone and got one or two from a pet shop, I think. Well, but here we have a first in the history of Susan and the actress Caroline Ford, which is, this is the first time it was her choice to do the screaming. In fact, Ooh. the director, who was a Hungarian guy who didn't speak English well, we will talk about this soon. The director came in and said, why are you acting so maudlin? Why are you doing all this stuff? And, and she's like, I'm in a cell in France about to be beheaded, surrounded by rats. I think this is one time when it makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> so she actually stood up for playing it that way at that point. <laughs> yeah. And we're back to the doctor on the chain gang. And while he and the others are breaking up rocks with picks, the foreman is sitting on a big rock counting his money. <laughs> so, <laughs> and the doctor asks any of the other prisoners if they have some money. But they're, of course, like, why would you think we would have any money? Why would we be here <laughs> if we had any money? <laughs> He hatches a plan, which he communicates to them. And one of the work crews suddenly starts making some noise. The foreman approaches and the doctor says, an eclipse is coming and points up to the sky. And I don't know if this is intentional, but you have to assume there's a reference here to the Aztecs because an eclipse was mm. a big part of the Aztec story. Yeah. And so while the foreman is looking up for the eclipse, the doctor pickpockets some of his money <laughs> from his bag. Yeah. And we get to see his hand going into the foreman's bag. And he doesn't really look all that light-fingered, but, you know, he gets away with it. <laughs> <laughs> and the foreman goes and sits down again, and the doctor puts the money, you know, it's a really big coin, in the dirt and covers it up. And then he yells, I've just found this coin down there that must have come from a hidden treasure. <laughs> and the foreman gets very interested and runs over, picks up the coin, and then he insists that no one else is allowed to <laughs> do what they've been doing. He's going to take care of everything because he wants any money that he might find. <laughs> the doctor takes this opportunity to take a shovel and whack him on the head, which is a... Uh, I would say in the history of Doctor Who, that's not a very common thing. Again, that's a pretty violent thing for him to do. And here we can be all funny. Oh, look, he knocked him out. But I mean, you'd mm. probably kill somebody. You <laughs> 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 can do some damage, a uh, concussion or the like. <laughs> yeah. And then he does a weird thing. Everybody else runs off. The foreman is laying there on the ground. 
And the doctor takes that coin and puts it on one of his eyes, which would have to be a reference to Greek mythology where he put coins on their eyes to pay off the ferryman to death. But it's just, a, mm-hmm. to me, it's just a little weird. Like, why would you do this? But yeah. That, that, that. So it was a clever solution. It was a fun little scene, although uh, yeah. keeping his mouth shut would have been more clever. <laughs> and then we're back to the cells and the warden takes Barbara and Susan out to join fellow prisoners lets them know that Ian was crossed off the execution list, but they were not so fortunate. They're all going to the guillotine. <laughs> hmm. They get marched out. Meanwhile, Ian is in his cell looking out the windows and he sees Barbara and Susan being marched off. And it's the end of the episode. <laughs> <laughs> Next up, a change of identity. You realize that Robespierre will be asking to see the execution figures. I have them ready, citizen. I hope for your sake that they're satisfactory. Otherwise, instead of being jailer here, you could find yourself a prisoner. We start off revisiting the last scene as usual, with Ian looking out the bars of his prison cell and he sees Barbara and Susan. We know this because he says, Barbara, Susan. <laughs> and we move to a street scene. It's a set. It's very obviously a sound stage, but it's pretty well done. It's mm-hmm. kind of an overhead shot. An old lady comes walking down the street toward the camera. She looks kind of hunched over and unhealthy. She's coughing loudly, carrying a laundry basket. Behind her uh, is the doctor, who is uh, <laughs> looking fairly dapper. He's got his coat and his cane, and uh, mm-hmm. he waves her stench and her coughs away with his handkerchief a couple times. <laughs> Then he stands around trying to decide where to go next. And we switch to two armed men skulking in the streets. One of them says a tumbrel should have passed by now, Jules. In Wikipedia, a tumbrel is a two-wheeled cart designed to be hauled by a single horse or ox. And our most infamous use was taking prisoners to the guillotine during the French Revolution. (laughs) So it's a... a good place to use them, right here, yep. Doctor. <laughs> they speculate on how many soldiers there will be with the cart. Six, maybe five, says the other one who is named Jules. The one named John says, It's a pity Leon isn't with us today. The odds would have been more favorable. Yeah, and, you know, if there's anything... I love heist movies, right? Mm. And if there's anything I've learned from heist movies, it's if you're on a heist and one guy doesn't show up, that's a problem. (laughs) (laughs) We'll see what that might mean as we go along. (laughs) (laughs) Jules is more secure about this, though. He says, don't forget we have a surprise on our side. It's worth three men. In the jail, in the prison, the gruel is being handed out. The jailer tells Ian if he wants some food, he'd better get back against the wall and stay there. <laughs> yeah, and this is because what he's really saying is, we can't show you on camera because you're in France. <laughs> <laughs> then the uh, distinguished visitor who seems to inspire terror in the jailer, he reappears and calls for the jailer. But there's a little problem. The key is stuck in the lock. So the jailer fiddles with it for all of one second, and then he decides to... Leave it where it is. Leave the whole key ring dangling there in the hallway. And he rushes off. Now, I think I would have probably taken the extra 10 seconds to try and get that key unstuck. 
But I will defend the story to say, you know, they've made it clear that he is really terrified of the power of this citizen. So I think that it's understandable that he doesn't want to take any extra time. The jailer gets to his office where the other fellow's waiting and explains he was busy with the food and he's carrying two empty bowls of food, in fact. (laughs) And this other guy says, prison food's unimportant. He doesn't slap the bowls away, but rather he gives them a push. The ultimate result is the same, but it's just kind (laughs) of a counterintuitive way of doing it. He's come to see the numbers of executions and he hopes for the jailer's sake that they're satisfactory. I'm not clear why the jailer would have any control over how many executions were done. It's not like he's out rounding up people. Yeah, yeah, I suppose that is a little little odd thing. And in fact, this other guy is the one who was able to cross Ian's name off the execution list. So yeah. you should take a look at the beam in his own eye. <laughs> oh, well. Anyway, in Ian's cell, he's looking spiffy. So he's in this totally dank and dirty, terrible place, and his shirt is just brilliant. It's like an ad for a laundry detergent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's very clean, or at least maybe it's just uniformly dirty. It could be that, I guess. <laughs> and he looks out through the bars in the door. He can just fit his head through the gap, and he notices that the keys are dangling down from the lock. So he seizes the opportunity he reaches out he can just reach the key ring he takes the key to his cell from the ring and then replaces the key ring putting a different key in the lock clever little scheme there in the jailer's office the lieutenant is or no i i I put him as the lieutenant in my notes because i had thought that was who he was but this is another guy turns out his name is lemaitre although i'm not sure that's been introduced yet He's pleased with the numbers, the execution numbers that he has more control over than the jailer. He says, loyalty should not go unrewarded. Jailer says, citizen, you seek no reward. Which, as he says it, is totally unbelievable. (laughs) It's unbelievable, but on the other hand, he does sound apprehensive, because maybe he's thinking, the less attention I draw to myself from this guy, the better off Actually, I I think they portray it very well, and he portrays it very well. Of course, he's the kind of person who would seek a reward, but he's not going to seek a reward, because that would cause him problems. (laughs) (laughs) But Lemaitre says he'll he'll see to it that the jailer's name is mentioned in the right quarter. (laughs) Now, when he says this, to me, that's one of those vague things, like you'll get what's coming to you. Ah, 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 Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that could be, uh, you could take that more than one way. (laughs) Mm -hmm. After he leaves, the jailer heads back to the cell. He's quite relieved to find the keys are still there. Doesn't notice that the keys that's in the lock now is not the actual key to that cell. Then we have a street scene. That tumbrel we've been waiting for is uh, having a bit of a problem. And they actually have a horse in here. (laughs) Yeah, and this was a big deal, having a live horse on the set. And Carol Ann Ford, who plays Susan, was very excited about it, and she spent a bunch of time with the horse. But they didn't really think it through. I mean, they're relatively small sets, and a horse is very big, and horses poop. (laughs) They were having all sorts of problems with the horse. And the funny thing is here, some of the dialogue, to me, looks like it's been inserted to cover for the trouble they were having because they're like, oh, look Mm. what's happening with the horse. (laughs) (laughs) But the other thing that was happening here is that I mentioned the director earlier. So the director is a Hungarian. He was new to directing. He was new to the BBC. He was new to the country. (laughs) He couldn't speak a whole lot of English. 
at first things started out well, but over the last couple of episodes, the cast relationship with him degraded. And, and by the third episode, it was in a very, very bad place. Hmm. And they couldn't understand him and they were annoyed about a lot of things. And the shoot overall was just going really badly for them. And at this point in the third episode, he was so stressed out that he collapsed in the control room and had to mm. be taken away by an ambulance. Mm. Now, the actors don't necessarily know what's going on, right? Because the control room is way up in another place and they're down here doing their thing. And then all of a sudden, different people are telling them to do things. They don't really know what's going on. And so they have a day of filming Like they have to get this. They've done rehearsals before this, and then they have this day to just get this thing filmed. And basically it was done without a director. And we'll see some of the impact of that. Hmm. The positive part of this is once the crew knew that the director had gone through this much stress and had collapsed, they let up on him. They stopped being hard on him. And the rest of the shoot was much more enjoyable for everyone, both because of that and because they also moved after this to a larger studio that was like twice as large, which made everyone's lives easier. So <laughs> the combination mm. of those things changed things. I didn't mention this in our upfront context because I believe, and, and you can tell me what you think as, as the new guy to this story. I think if you don't know any of that, you would have no idea. I think the story goes along just fine. Yeah, yeah, I certainly, I mean, these first three episodes, I found them pretty entertaining. I do think they probably made three episodes where two would have sufficed. <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> that's Doctor Who. Yeah, <laughs> but they're enjoyable. And I'll say from the documentary stuff with the actors, it seems like for a long time, they were reacting just to the bad time they had on the set. And now they look back and say, actually, you know, that turned out pretty well. So I think that's their mm. opinion as well. Yeah. It yeah. reminds me of Blade Runner where Harrison Ford just hated Blade Runner for a long time because all he could think of was two plus months of every night in a rain filled set <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, just being miserable. And he just couldn't back out and see what the result had been. Right. And it took him decades mm. before he could sort of do that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Yeah. Yeah, it's probably some consolation to know that he'll be remembered for most of human history for that, probably. <laughs> the the tumbrel, the two-wheeled cart, on this stop, Barbara speculates that the horse has thrown a shoe and they plan an escape. Well, she plans one at least, right? Susan is really out of it. I mean, she is just... Yeah, yeah. yeah. Susan's not very useful in this scene. Uh, we'll see more of that. Jules and John... They are also noticing that there's some trouble with the horse. And that explains why the cart was so late and didn't show up where they were expecting it. Yep. Then they have this big fight, which is supposed to be kind of an epic fight. This is where I think you can see the result of the director having collapsed and being gone. This fight doesn't work at all. The timing is all off. The actors are doing things clearly in expectation that certain, you know, like a shot's going to happen or something. A gunshot mm. that doesn't happen at that time. One of the surprising things about this is when the director collapsed, Verity Lambert was brought in, the producer. Now, Verity Lambert is a very strong person, even though she's young, and she has gotten this series to where it is now. But in that moment, she did not make a clear decision about who was going to replace the role of the director. Hmm. And as a result, everyone was just running around telling people what to do. So you had three or four people giving instructions 
And that's how you get mm. into a situation where you have a complex scene with all sorts of action that's supposed to occur, but none of it's occurring at quite the right time. <laughs> and nah. everything's a little confusing. And I would say that even though I said overall, I think you would never notice that there were these problems of the director in the first three episodes. This is the point where you notice where like things are just not quite working. Yeah. And, and this is also, this is where Barbara proposes making their escape plans a reality, and Susan says, Oh, my head's splitting and my back's aching. <laughs> to me, it seems like if I knew I'm a prisoner on the way to the guillotine and I have a chance to escape, you yep. know, maybe that's my head splitting and back aching or something I'll have to try and fight through. But <laughs> that's just me. Yep. But Barbara takes it in stride and consoles her. Unfortunately, Jean and Jules are there to shoot everybody. So <laughs> they end up rescuing Susan and Barbara, and then they lead them away. Yep. Meanwhile, the doctor has found a tailor's shop. The tailor was just closing up. He seems like kind of a friendly guy. Maybe also, then, you know, there's something to me that seems a little bit not quite right about him, but I don't know. That could just be me projecting. <laughs> I don't know. But the tailor makes conversation with him. He says, Citizen Robespierre is doing a fine job, don't you think? Hunting out the traitors? <laughs> the doctor says, yes, yeah, splendid fellow. <laughs> and, you know, also the tailor expresses disappointment that he get, didn't get to watch the day's uh, beheadings. <laughs> oh, yeah. And at this point, I, I found myself wondering, so is this tailor really an enthusiastic revolutionary or is he, is he just spouting this as pro forma, this is what you're <laughs> supposed to say to people you don't know very well? Uh, we'll find out the answer to that a little later. Mm -hmm. The doctor asks about the conciergerie, the prison. The tailor points to it right out the window. It's right down the street. So that lets the doctor know where one of his next stops is going to be. And the doctor is looking through a rack of some nice clothes, and he comments on one outfit that's particularly impressive. And then across the room, he notices a sash or a band with the tricolor flag on it. The tailor says it signifies the position of the regional officer of the provinces, and the doctor says, yes, I'm quite aware of that. Yes, quite aware, <laughs> yes. In fact, it's a post that I myself personally occupy. <laughs> How convenient. <laughs> yeah. And the doctor, it's not clear whether he did this out of his knowledge of the French Revolution or just blind luck, but the uniform that he spotted and the band that was behind the counter are part of the same set. So he starts negotiating for him. And I, I think the implication from everything Susan has said about how much he's into this period of history has to be, he really does know this stuff. Oh, sure. Yeah, that seems like the most likely answer. So the doctor negotiates for it. The tailor says, oh, the price is very good. And the doctor says it doesn't matter because he doesn't <laughs> have any money. <laughs> Not um, a good starting point in your negotiation. <laughs> <laughs> he ends up negotiating for it by... The tailor, who is skeptical of the doctor's own coat, he brings the tailor around to thinking that maybe it's something he could use. He says, have you ever seen a coat like this? Because, of course, it's a modern, you know, at the time it was done, coat with fabrics and everything that this person would have never seen before. So right. he kind of eventually impresses him that, like, actually there's a lot going on with this coat. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. So the doctor negotiates to get an outfit and writing materials. 
in exchange for his outfit, everything he's wearing, and his ring. It's a little black oval stone on his finger, and I think we've seen it in all or most of the episodes hmm. up to this point. I hadn't paid attention, but that's good if it was there all along. Yeah, I'm, I'm not certain, but I, I'm, I'm almost sure I've seen it before. So anyway, that's the trade he's going to make. Seems fair enough. Yeah, and he succeeds. And one of the things I like here, and, and we've seen it now twice in this episode, first with the prison gang and now with this, is that this is an unusual case that I think will become more common in the future of the doctor using his intelligence to get out of things. So he's not using special alien weapons or mind control or anything. He is just dealing with the situation and being very smart in order to get what he needs. Mm -hmm. And I think that's good. It makes it, it makes him feel more formidable than if he had been able to just do a trick or something. Yeah. And that would be a nice thing to, if it becomes a, a regular feature going forward, kind of like, you know, the show MacGyver, where he used to <laughs> rig together yep. paper clips and chewing gum or whatever, uh, <laughs> you know, if the doctor solves problems this way, like, uh, scattering coins in the dirt to indicate buried treasure is there stuff like that. You know, that's, that's cool. That'll be fun. Yep. So now we see an interior of a fairly nice-looking uh, dwelling. We we don't see the exterior. We just see this one room. It's kind of like a parlor. It's got a table and candles and you know, sitting room or maybe a dining room, something like that. Mm -hmm. Barbara and Susan have been brought here by Jules and Jean. Another woman is here who turns out to be Danielle, Jules's sister. She says, I expect you'd like a bath and some food, and she leaves with Jean to prepare those. Barbara and Susan and Jules talk a bit. Jules says Christian names only, which is to say given names or first names. The less my friends and I know, the less we could admit to when questioned. Yep. The other two return with food, and Jules says that after they've eaten, they're going to have to rest so that the next day they can smuggle them out of France. <laughs> Susan doesn't like that because Doctor Who... Is his fate is still unknown, or the doctor, pardon me. <laughs> you know, You've generally uh, been okay with it, but that's good. <laughs> yeah, I've only gone 50 years hearing nothing but doctor who. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, she knows he's out there, his fate undetermined. And Barbara says the same for Ian. He's still in the prison. So they're both concerned. They, they can't get out mm. of France until they know they're all right. Back in the jail, Ian makes his move. And calls for the jailer just to see if he's around. There's no answer. He doesn't get a pot thrown at him or anything. So <laughs> he takes out the cell key that he stole earlier, reaches down to the lock, unlocks it, gets out, relocks it, sneaks up the hall. Now the jailer's on the floor here. He's got a little bleeding wound on his head. I had a big one, just like a little cut. He's lying next to a big bottle of fresh crystal water right from the <laughs> sense sphere. It's actually booze we are meant to assume, I think, and uh, he's he's injured and probably drunk as well. But mm. it's a good opportunity for Ian to escape, which he does. Lemaitre, the sinister man that the jailer was afraid of, he comes out of hiding to watch Ian leave. And he says, did Webster give you a message for James Sterling or not? We shall see. We shall see. It is kind of funny he says it out loud, and I understand it's a TV show. <laughs> it's not normally yeah. the kind of thing you would just say. But <laughs> yeah, a little helpful exposition there. It's, uh, not bad. So back at the 
Jules' house, he has a map. And Barbara and Susan show them where they arrived in the TARDIS and where they went after that. They actually go through a little more of this than they <laughs> may have needed to. But <laughs> Oh, well. Eventually, they get to the point where they show them where they were arrested. And Jean knows the place. He says, they must have discovered our escape route, Jules. Jules says they might have just been unlucky. He says, we'll wait till we've heard from Leon. The route is his responsibility. Right. So Leon did not show up to breaking Barbara and Susan free, and this is his responsibility. So, hmm. Yeah. (laughs) He he did not fulfill his responsibility on this occasion. Mm Mm-hmm. Barbara tells them that the two men were shot, Rouvray and, uh, was it Argonian? Whoever they were, the first two guys. <laughs> John says, someone's informing on us. And Joe says, later, John. Susan speculates, you knew those men, didn't you? Which doesn't really take a whole lot of deduction at this point because yeah. they've been talking about them. But, oh, well, it, it helps make everything clear to, the, uh, to us, the viewers. So that's good. And John points out that Jules has saved many lives from the guillotine. They talk a little about the doctor and Ian, and Jules ends up giving his word that he won't rest until all four of the companions have been brought together again. <laughs> I'm not sure why this should really matter to him. You know, we have this whole, like, civil war in France going on, et cetera, but he's going to bring the four of them back together again. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Just a nice guy, I guess. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Susan's headache has returned, and Daniel takes her to bed. She needs rest. There's a knock on the door. John opens the door with his pistol in hand, and it's Leon, the mysterious missing man who hasn't fulfilled his responsibility. He's not suspicious at all. (laughs) (laughs) He says that there's been a stranger asking for Jules, and he's introduced to Barbara, and he takes her hand and very elegantly gives her a continental kiss. Barbara walks toward him, and I swear... Within the first two seconds, they already need to get a room. <laughs> it's like, you know, <laughs> her attraction to him is very, very instant. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. They do seem to be uh, hitting it off pretty well. Then, conveniently, Jules plans to go investigate this man who's been asking after him. He says, we're slipping out for a while. And Jean and Jules leave. Leon who is apparently a rather smooth operator, says, perhaps you'd care for some wine. And Barbara agrees. (laughs) Yeah, you know, one of the things I've learned of the dating scene is sometimes you just need to accept yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And, you know, when when in Paris, do as the Parisians do. (laughs) Exactly. So in the jailer's office, he's up and about now. He's got a bandage on his head. Uh, but that's not stopping him from drinking. Good for him. <laughs> well, it dulls the pain. You know? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> and we hear a voice that is the doctor's. He says, let me in, you fools. I could have you <laughs> shot at dawn. You fools. <laughs> <laughs> I, I told you every time the fools comes up, I got to throw mm-hmm. it in there. You fools. I love this moment because he walks in with this just amazing costume with these feathers coming <laughs> off of his head and everything. And you're just like, wow, okay, we've never seen the doctor like that before. <laughs> oh, yes. He's really dressed to the nines. 
The doctor comes in and presents the jailer with his credentials. And as soon as the jailer starts looking at him, he yanks him out of his hand. Yeah, you don't uh, need to look at that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The doctor indicates that he would have expected an escort to keep him safe. And the jailer <laughs> says, oh, well, if we'd known they were coming, we would have done something. The doctor says, you were advised. I forwarded the communication myself. What if Robespierre hears about this? <laughs> he's laying it on pretty thick. Again, he's really in control. He's really doing his bit here. I, I like it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's, uh, he's really selling it so far. And the, the jailer does not want Robespierre to hear about this <laughs> at all. He says, oh, he's a very busy man. I'm at your service, citizen. Anything you wish to know. The doctor decides now there's a time to throw him a breadcrumb. He says, <laughs> you seem a capable man. I'm sure this misunderstanding is none of your doing. And the jailer says, oh, indeed, citizen, I am most conscientious. But when you're assisted by idiots. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the doctor makes a lot of use of this as we see going along. The doctor is once again being clever and not using technology or whatever, but just using psychology to get what he needs. And I think that's pretty interesting. Oh, yeah. The doctor goes on to say that he's looking for three traitors, a man, a woman, and a, a young child. A young <laughs> child whose actress is 23 years old. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the jailer tells him the women were sent to the guillotine, but were unfortunately rescued from the cart. <laughs> and the man, well, he, uh, he escaped, but he fought with the strength of 10 men. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so presumably the jailer had to hold him off and Ian, you know, fought him as if he was Hercules. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the jailer's, uh, betting, I, I think the baseball term would be he's betting zero, <laughs> <laughs> but the doctor seems not to hold against him and he turns, he's ready to go. He's heard what he needs to hear. And there's this other guy, Lemaitre, the man who strikes fear in the jailer's heart. <laughs> and he wants to see the doctor's papers. And uh, <laughs> he looks at him a little longer than the jailer was allowed to, but he doesn't really comment on them. The doctor indicated he was going to head back to the province where he's a big cheese. And Lemaitre says, it's rather late. It would perhaps be better if you journeyed tomorrow. He explains that, He's taking the execution lists that he'd been studying earlier to Robespierre's palace. And by a coincidence, your province is going to be discussed. So it would be helpful if the doctor came along to answer any questions and perhaps prove who he claims to be. <laughs> but of course, he doesn't say that part. And he says, come, we must not keep citizen Robespierre waiting. Mm-hmm. And then back at Jules' parlor, uh, Barbara and Leon are having a pleasant wine <laughs> together and uh, she reveals she was born in england and she says so that makes us enemies leon says does it i prefer to think it means you have no interest in france or the revolution <laughs> that kind of puzzles barbara but he says perhaps i'll explain one day <laughs> mm -hmm. so again not not doing anything too out of the ordinary here and, and then Barbara decides she'd better go check on Susan, who hopefully is asleep by now, instead of complaining about her headache again. <laughs> this is the one out-of-character thing here in that she seems to be ready to jump his bones, but and then she's like, oh, i got to go check Susan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, she's uh, probably trying to keep herself under control, you know, <laughs> try, trying to be the model of discretion. 
But Leon opens the door for her with a little courteous bow. Then we're back in the jailer's office, and a man has shown up and is talking to the jailer, and it's the tailor. Mm. And the jailer says, he's just left, meaning uh, Lemaitre, has just left to see Citizen Robespierre. Are you sure it's so urgent? The tailor says, I want to give him this, evidence against a traitor. And it's the doctor's ring with the black stone in it. Mm-hmm. And that's the end of episode three. <laughs> this is half the story. What's your feeling at this point? I'm enjoying it. It's fun. This is an, another, another video game reference since, <laughs> since I've actually participated in the uh, events of the French Revolution and <laughs> Assassin's Creed Unity. I'm used to revolutionary Paris being a big place with, you know, wide open skies and church steeples you can climb up on and stuff. So the, the sets are relatively claustrophobic compared to that. You know, it's a different, uh, different sort of thing, but I understand the budgetary constraints for what they are. They look good. Oh yeah. The sets are, are well done for what they have to work with, but it's kind of a shame not to see more of Paris and all the various things going on at the time. Mm-hmm. But that's all right. Aside from that, the story itself is fun. Um, they really got me kind of on the hook wanting to see what's going to happen next. I thought it was indicative that it was kind of hard for me to find things to make fun of, you know, (laughs) which (laughs) when we're talking about the caveman episode or the Daleks or whatever, it's not too hard to find things to make fun of, but right. Yeah. This one, I was just watching it. (laughs) Oh yeah. Yeah. No, it was, uh, it was good overall that the one guy in the first episode who was really scared, (laughs) he came across as more weird than scared. (laughs) (laughs) And he didn't last long. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, they've been some fun episodes so far. I'm, I'm enjoying it. And the next two, I believe, are the animated ones. They are. So it'll be interesting to see what you think about those. We continue our discussion of the Reign of Terror with episode four, The Tyrant of France. So very significantly, this is the first of our two animated episodes in this story. For a long, long time, if episodes or an entire story were missing, modern viewers simply missed out unless they were willing to watch a bunch of still photos with the audio in the background. And I'm really delighted that over the last 10 years or so, they've started animating all the lost stuff so that we can experience the story pretty realistically. Now, the animated episodes for different stories tend to be done by different animation houses, so you get very different results. What do you think in this case of the animation guy? Overall, it's good. It was obviously done by people with some talent. It might actually be CGI, like three-dimensional computer graphics that have been made into an animation. But if that's the case, I'm not certain why the frame rate is low. It is more of an anime-style frame rate, you know, not a lot of frames per second. One thing about that I noticed, too, again, they clearly cared, and they put a lot of work into it. This isn't like He-Man, right? But but there's a little bit of the He-Man in that certain parts of the face would move more than others. So in particular, it was clear they wanted the eyes to be very dynamic. And one of the results would be the eyes would be moving around while some of the rest of the face was still. (laughs) So it was kind of creepy even sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, and the eyes do seem maybe a little larger than life, like they're a little <laughs> yeah. exaggerated. And I thought the caricatures of the characters, they're not perfect. The doctor is recognizable as the doctor, but he almost always has this kind of leering, crazed look. And I, I think maybe who he reminds me of is from the original Lost in Space, <laughs> Dr. Smith. How dare you speak to me in that fashion, you frightful, fractious frump! There's just kind of this constant expectation in the animated doctor's face <laughs> that's uh, not identical to William Hartnell. Ian and Barbara, I'd say they were done so-so in most scenes. If I hadn't known it was them, I wouldn't have even been certain it was them. Mm. Susan's character is, is pretty good. It, it looks generally, it looks pretty much like her. But all in all, it's good. Can't complain. Yeah, I think that my main criticism, aside from the weird little eye thing and everything, would be that especially for the non-main characters, I couldn't originally figure out who the character I was looking at was. Mm. And it would take me a while. And in one case, I actually had to look up in the script to see who it was. So, But, you know, the backgrounds are good. Again, they clearly cared. Mm. They clearly put in a lot of work. It's not perfect. It's not Pixar. <laughs> but it does allow you to enjoy the story, I think. So. In some cases, the backgrounds actually look almost photorealistic, like maybe they had taken hmm. photos from the production and actually based the graphics on those. Right, that uh, makes sense. So they're pretty well done. Now, the other thing I'll mention is that on the one hand, it's kind of a negative, which is the sound, especially in the animated episodes, was clearly recorded from somebody's television set. And that's annoying because it means the sound is a little hard to hear sometimes and a little obscure. But it's also great because the thing was that kids were so excited about Doctor Who. There were many kids across the United Kingdom who would set up a tape recorder and record the episode so they could re-listen to it later. Because, of course, they didn't have VCRs or any way to revisit an episode except to record the sound and replay yeah. it. And because mm. they did that, we have the sound for missing episodes and we wouldn't be able to even experience these episodes if they hadn't done that. So these nerdy kids, and I probably would have been one of them if I'd been there with their little mm -hmm. tape players, annoying the rest of their family. And it's funny because there is a documentary about this on a future DVD. When you hear the whole audio, you'll hear, you know, one of their, their siblings running around, you know, <laughs> and, you know, annoying them, et cetera, during, during the process. <laughs> yeah. Huh. Yeah, I, I was wondering about that, why for some episodes we'd have the sound and not the visuals, and that, that makes sense. And in fact, in the 70s, I had a little red Panasonic tape recorder, <laughs> and somewhere in my vast archives, I have a bunch of cassette tapes that have snippets of Saturday Night Live on it. <laughs> I did the exact same thing. <laughs> That's funny. One of the great things for Doctor Who is there's a sound engineer named Mark Ayers, who's a big Doctor Who fan, and he basically brought together these different tapes and engineered them into something that you could actually broadcast. Huh. Uh, so you'll see his credits, especially the animated Doctor Who's. Okay, so all that said, let's get into the episode itself. Even now, convention members are at work plotting my downfall, but I will triumph. Even if I have to execute every last one of them, death, always death. The Doctor is presented by Lemaitre to Robespierre. And I believe every citizen was equal. 
And Robespierre, I believe, was considered the first among equals. And, you know, if you're all going to be equal, it's good to be the first equal. (laughs) (laughs) All animals are equal, but some are more equal than others. (laughs) Yep. Robespierre wants to hear about the doctor's province. Amusingly, they keep talking about the province that the doctor comes from, but they never mention what the province is. (laughs) And the doctor says, well, I want to give you my impressions of the Paris situation. And Robespierre says, well, how long have you been in Paris? And the doctor says, a day. And he's like, well, I'm not interested in your one-day impression of Paris. I want to hear about your province, especially since your province is not killing people fast enough. (laughs) (laughs) And the doctor has a good response. He says, perhaps we have fewer enemies in our region, and it may be that Paris could take an example from us. (laughs) Now, that is a clever response, but again, this is Robespierre who kills dozens of people every day. So mm-hmm. he's not really winning friends or influencing people here. <laughs> oh, yeah. But the doctor is artfully skirting the fact that he knows nothing about the province <laughs> he supposedly represents. Right. And then he directly challenges the idea that Ropes here has that nothing can progress until all the right people have been killed. <laughs> and remind me of saying, I'll, I'll uh, revise it a bit here, you know, the beheadings will continue until morale improves. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> Which was very much, you know, Robespierre's approach. Oh, yeah. So Robespierre is also upset that after getting rid of the nobility and installing himself, now his own friends and colleagues are plotting for power, (laughs) the nerve. (laughs) And the doctor says, well, maybe they're just trying to keep their heads. (laughs) (laughs) And Robespierre says, but I will triumph, even if I have to execute every last one of them. (laughs) He definitely has a plan. He has an approach. (laughs) Yeah. And at this point, the doctor gets up to leave and Robespierre says, you must come again, citizen. We never did talk about your province. And I like the way the doctor says this. He says, no, we didn't. And I was so looking forward to it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he managed to stick that out pretty well and managed to completely avoid talking about the (laughs) province. That was good. So now we switch to the house with Barbara and Susan and Leon. Susan is sickly, which is kind of just her default state in this entire story. The sister of Jules, Danielle, enters and gives Susan something warm to drink. And Leon very kind of presumptuously says that he wants some wine. And Danielle gives it right back to him. She says, it's on the table. (laughs) (laughs) So not a warm relationship. And we never really find out what this is all about. He makes a remark after she leaves. I think he he says, uh, you can't be friends with everyone. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So there's something going on there, and it may just be her intuition telling her that he's not on the up and up. Yeah, and I'm also going to guess, based on what we're about to talk about with him and Barbara, that maybe he kind of put the moves on her a bit, and maybe she, Mm, but, you know, I'm making all that up in my head, just, mm. Yeah, sure. Leon and Barbara debate calling a physician for Susan, and Leon says they report almost everything these days to save their own necks. But Barbara says they've got to take the risk. Susan is sick. So Leon agrees to he's going to contact a physician. And then he wonders where Jules is, and he leaves. On leaving, he says, we'll meet again, Barbara, and soon. And to <laughs> me, this had kind of an ominous feel. <laughs> mm-hmm. Then Susan, who's been sitting there, whacked out in the chairs, wakes up, and she says, you like Leon, don't you? And it's funny, because... I like Barbara a lot. She's a great character in these stories. I'm not going to use vulgar words, but she does tend to get attracted to people, and she's not very subtle about it. And here we have someone who's been passed out the entire time, and even she can see what's going on. (laughs) So Barbara takes Susan upstairs, and as she leaves the room, 
some people come to the window and open it and it turns out to be Jean and Jules and they drag a body through the window, a, a hooded body. Then they remove the hood, but we can't see who it is. They talk about the fact they had to knock him out because he might've alerted somebody and they don't know if he was on their side or not. And finally we get to see who it is. Now with the animation, I couldn't tell, but when I looked up, it's Ian yeah. and he wakes up and it turns out the whole deal is they had been told someone was asking after them and it was Ian. So they went out to find Ian. They found him and they knocked him out and brought him in. Yeah, that was uh, the guy who died in Ian's cell had told him, look for this Jules Renan, and that's this Jules. Yep. Now we're back to the prison, and the doctor and Lemaitre are there, and Lemaitre says the doctor made a good impression on Robespierre, and he'll have another opportunity to influence Robespierre. And the doctor says, oh, I think not. <laughs> He's not really interested in spending a lot of time with this guy. He's got to get back. Things to do, places to go. Yep. And so the doctor's insisting he needs to leave and do whatever he needs to do. And Lemaitre is like, sorry, Robespierre is expecting you to come back. And after all, he's the first among equals, so you can't disappoint the first among equals. And so Lemaitre says, oh, but I insist that you stay. And Lemaitre calls out to the jailer who's been sleeping as usual, drunk at his desk. And he tells the jailer to put the doctor up for the night in a room. And since it's a jailer, well, presumably they do have some nicer rooms here. This isn't exactly a hotel. It's probably not going to be a great experience. <laughs> the jailer says the doctor can have a soldier's room. Then the jailer tells Lemaitre that someone is waiting to see him about something important. Lemaitre goes to what's apparently his office and finds the tailor from the last episode. And the tailor presents him with the doctor's ring. This, I'm going to say, another criticism of the animation. I did not know this was the tailor until I mm, looked it up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the jailer is ready to take the doctor to his room, but since Lemaitre's gone out, the doctor says, oh, I'm not going to be staying after all. I asked Lemaitre to put me up, but I really need to get going. And he starts to leave, and the jailer pulls a gun on him. And I think the doctor also protests that he doesn't want to Kick those poor soldiers out of their room, which is really <laughs> thoughtful excuse, of them. Yeah. <laughs> so once the gun is pulled, the doctor is persuaded that maybe he should stay. He cleverly says he's not going to say anything about this disgraceful behavior on the jailer's part for the jailer's sake. So he's making sure the jailer won't say anything about it either. <laughs> right. I, I didn't catch that till, uh, you know, I sort of skimmed through it on a second viewing and then I realized, oh, okay. <laughs> it made a little more sense. Now we have Lemaitre and the tailor talking in Lemaitre's office. The tailor has told him all about the white-haired man who bought clothes, paper, and a sash of office. Lemaitre's about to send him off, and the tailor's like, look, I've given you this ring and these clothes, but that means that I'm losing in this deal because I had to pay money for all this stuff. So Lemaitre gives him a small bag of money to compensate. He tells him the condition for the money is that he is to say nothing to anyone. And this is interesting. It's a little flag. Like, why would he do this? But we will, we'll come mm -hmm. back to this later. <laughs> okay. Now we're back to Jules' house. Ian is regaining consciousness. Barbara comes in and sees him and they celebrate that they're together again. Barbara introduces Ian to Jules and John. And Ian says, not Jules Renan. And of course, this is the person that he was looking for. Barbara and Jean leave the room, and Jules and Ian talk, 
And Ian explains about the prisoner from his cell who told him to find Jules and then to contact James Sterling. But Jules doesn't know who James Sterling is. John then brings in some wine. This being a story about France, wine plays a, a big part, which is good. As Ian tells more of the story, John says he'll share one drink with them and leave. Now, I don't know if they intended this, but it felt to me, you know, we already have the sense that there's somebody who is reporting on them. There's somebody in their org who's a mole. Mm-hmm. It kind of felt to me like John wants to suddenly leave. Does that mean maybe he's the mole? Yeah. Yeah, they could have done that deliberately, sure. They all speculate on who James Sterling might be. Jules says he has to be someone who can move around freely for his spying. Jules figures Ian was told to contact Jules because England must be referring people to Jules who are coming over. Now we kind of see, I think, some of John's motivation because he gets very uncomfortable and he's upset. And he tells Jules he doesn't want England using them for their purposes. They may not be happy with the revolution, but... They're not Anglophiles. <laughs> mm. And Jules says, look, England is at war with the people ruling France, and so are we. And when the tyranny ends, so will the war. So we might as well be working with England. And Jules tells Ian that Jean is about to leave and find the doctor. Jean is going to go back to the house that this whole th- story started at and trace the path and try to find the doctor. And meanwhile, Jules and Ian will search for whoever James Sterling is. And Jules thinks that Leon, who just recently left, can help them out because he travels in many circles. And maybe he's even James Sterling. Who knows? (laughs) And (laughs) again, this being a French story, they decide this calls for another glass of wine. (laughs) But Barbara comes in and kind of spoils the party by saying Susan is getting worse. (laughs) We're back to the prison and the doctor is sneaking out. And it turns out the jailer is passed out at his desk drunk again. And the doctor is very pleased with himself. He kind of laughs about the fact that he's getting away with this. But the last laugh is on him because behind him is Lemaitre. And he says, good morning, <laughs> citizen. I hope you slept well. <laughs> Can't get away with it. The doctor does complain about his accommodations. It was a drafty room. The bed was hard, <laughs> etc. Lemaitre invites him to breakfast. And he says he has a feeling this is going to be quite an eventful day. Maybe <laughs> yeah. We just saw that the tailor had handed over his evidence, so he may have a little double meaning there. (laughs) And back to Jules' house, and Jules and Ian are there. Danielle, Jules' sister, enters with a message from Leon. The physician will not come to the house. Jules says if the physician won't come here, they'll just have to take Susan to the physician. Ian wants to go with Susan and protect her, but Jules feels it's going to be less suspicious if Barbara takes her. They debate it for a bit, but Ian gives in. We switch to the physician with Barbara and Susan there, and he says, Susan just has a feverish chill. It won't be a problem. She'll get over it. But he starts to kind of quiz them. He says, I'm surprised at your condition. Have you any idea how you came to catch this? Mm-hmm. And he asks questions about Susan's recent behavior, says she hasn't been taking care of herself, and he holds up Susan's hands and notes that her knuckles are very blistered. And Barbara now puts her hands behind her back because they had been trying to dig out these rocks in the prison, and that's what blistered their hands. I think Susan says uh, they'd been gardening. Which (laughs) Which is actually not a bad excuse. Yeah. Barbara just wants the physician to give Susan something, and the physician says it's a simple matter of bloodletting, which kind of reminded me of an old Steve Martin Saturday Night Live skit. Ah, what seems to be the matter with your friend here? 
I broke his legs. Hmm. I, I was at the festival of the Vernal Equinox, and uh, I guess I had a little bit too much meat, and I darted out in front of an ox cart. And it all happened so fast, the poor little fellas couldn't stop in time. Well, <laughs> you'll feel a lot better after a good bleeding. But <laughs> I'm bleeding already. <laughs> Say, who's the barber here? He says he needs to leave to collect some leeches so he can bloodlet her and insists that they wait until he returns. They have a little debate about this, but he won't give up on it, and it's not suspicious at all. And as soon as he leaves, he locks the door behind him. (laughs) But I I also kind of thought this was a late period to be doing bloodletting. Yeah, it's actually not. I learned this from the opera The Abduction of Figaro by P.D.Q. Bach, that leeches were used on George Washington on his deathbed. Mm. So they didn't help. But that was 1799. I looked that part up. (laughs) (laughs) So the physician leaves, locks the door behind him. We are now back to the prison. And the jailer is with a person. Again, an animation problem. I I actually, even though we'd just been watching the physician, I did not realize it was the physician until I looked it up. Mm. The jailer has mustered some soldiers based on what the physician has told him. So surprise, the physician went straight to the jail (laughs) to report them. Now, this is a little squirrely. The physician says, if I'm wrong, there will be no repercussions, will there? You know, good to know he has a conscience. (laughs) If he gets the wrong people killed, you know, will he be okay? (laughs) I I think he was mainly concerned about repercussions to him. Yeah. Yeah. He he wasn't worried about (laughs) the innocent people getting in trouble. Mm -hmm. So the soldiers head out to get them. We're back at the physician's place. Barbara's trying to get the door open. But someone is coming. The door opens. We have a very dramatic shot here with the sun coming through the door and the physician pointing at them with the soldiers behind him. And he says, there they are. (laughs) So, yep. Things are going very quickly in this story in general. I mean, this is a very action-oriented story with a lot going on. Although I will give them that I'm never confused about what's happening and it really just rolls along. Mm -hmm. We're back to the house with Ian. Jules enters. Ian believes something has gone wrong because it's taking them too long to get back from the physician. Jules thinks things are fine, and he's arranged for Ian to meet with Leon. Jules is going to go and check on Barbara and Susan. He tells Ian he needs to go to the basement of a disused church to meet with Leon. And this is an interesting little historical note here. The churches, just about all the property of the Catholic Church in France was seized by the revolutionaries, hey. and they just used it all for their own purposes during the I revolutionary period. So it probably was disused. It's really clear the writer of the story is Dennis Spooner, who I think is pretty well respected, and I think we will see again in future stories. It's clear he really does his homework, because he's really integrated in a subtle, non-awkward way a lot of these little facts. Mm-hmm. Back at the prison, Barbara and Susan have been brought back by the soldiers. Lemaitre appears, and he says something to the jailer. We can't hear what he's saying to him. The jailer says, I'll see that your orders are carried out, citizen. And he tells the soldiers, take the girl to the cell. And for some reason, Susan is upset about this. Barbara starts to go with her, but no, she is to be taken for questioning. And the jailer, on Lemaitre's instructions, takes her to the room with the doctor and tells the doctor, you're supposed to question this person. Barbara and the doctor celebrate being together again. And now we go to the church basement, which even, I will say, in the animation looks quite good and quite eerie. Uh, Like you said, they probably took it very directly from some of the photographs. And they did a good set design. 
it looks bigger than your typical Doctor Who <laughs> set, so I'm not sure if they sort of improvised on it a little or what. Well, yeah, I'm sure they had the benefit of being able to do a little better than what you could actually show, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that's a good point. And Ian walks into the basement, finds Leon. Leon says, are you alone? Now, again, from many, many movies, especially heist movies and, and such that I've watched, when someone says, are you alone or does anyone know you're here? <laughs> that's a problem. <laughs> it's a little red flag there. Yeah. Yep. Usually too late to do anything about it. Yeah. Ian says, yes, he's alone. Jewel said that Leon might be able to help. And while he's saying this, soldiers emerge from behind columns and Leon pulls a gun on Ian. You walked right into my trap, didn't you, Ian? (laughs) I'm going to say for for a story I like a lot, this is a little bit of an on-the-nose piece of dialogue. (laughs) Yeah, he's relishing it a bit too much, but oh well. You will find he follows this pattern a little bit more. (laughs) And it's the end of the episode. Gun pointed at Ian, what's going to happen? And we shall see with our next episode, A Bargain of Necessity. Has the young girl been locked away? She has. I saw to it myself, just as you wanted, sister. Good. She should remain in her cell, do you understand? Under no circumstances is the door to be opened. Just as you say, citizen. And if that order is disobeyed, I'll have you guillotined. In our last podcast, I forgot to mention that I've been using a website called Chrissy's Transcripts to help me prepare my notes for these episodes. So I want to give credit where credit's due. This episode picks up with Leon's betrayal, or Leon's betrayal, from last episode, He Walked Right Into My Trap. The titles come up over Ian's disappointed face and Leon pointing a flintlock at him. They're in the crypt of the church. Ian tries to argue for his freedom, saying that Jules is going to get suspicious if he doesn't get back before long. Leon says, don't worry about that. By the time he gets suspicious, we'll be gone, and then we'll take care of him. And poor Ian gets chained up to some manacles hanging from uh, a column or the ceiling or somewhere. Ian, at this point, astutely observes that you never know who your friends are. (laughs) (laughs) Leon is philosophical about the whole thing. He says that my association with Jules was bound to come to an end. He already suspected that a traitor, if you want to use those words, mm-hmm. was working in the organization. Well, yes, Leon, I do want to use those words. <laughs> now, the next scene takes place in Lemaitre's office or perhaps the doctor's room in the prison. The window even looks like it could be Barbara and Susan's old cell, but <laughs> it's some private place in the prison, though really not all that private, as we'll see in just a moment. Barbara's happy to see the doctor, and the doctor says, You should know by now, young lady, that you can't get rid of the old doctor as easily as that. <laughs> she laughs a little bit, or her, uh, her animated avatar laughs at it. I am reminded of the, I think, multiple times that the doctor was willing to leave Barbara behind if necessary. <laughs> we can skip over that, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, at any rate, she seems happy to see him now. Out in the hallway, though, Lemaitre is listening through the door. The prison does not have good soundproofing, which is probably why it's designed for a prison. (laughs) 
Inside the room, the doctor and Barbara are talking. The uh, doctor is wondering about what happened to Susan, and Barbara says she's here. The doctor decides the next order of business is to find Ian and then try to get back to the TARDIS. Barbara knows where Ian is. She mentions that they were all hiding out for a while at a house owned by a Jules Renan. Out in the hallway, the jailer comes up and interrupts Lemaitre and is listening and says, Robespierre wants to see you, he said immediately, citizen. So Lemaitre gives him very strict orders that no matter what happens, Susan is to be left in her cell. Under no circumstances is the door to be opened, and if that order is disobeyed, I'll have you guillotined. And with that, he takes off. So that is about as unequivocal as you can get in orders. Yep. Dr. and Barbara are still talking in their semi-private room. The doctor has impressed Barbara with uh, the weight that his voice carries around <laughs> these parts. Uh, and she's not surprised what with uh, the splendid getup that he's wearing. <laughs> doctor has formulated a plan. He says, give me a few minutes, then I want you to go through the door and straight out of the prison. Barbara is a little reluctant. She starts to put up an argument, but the doctor says, no buts, don't argue. You know my plans always work perfectly. Yeah, he's, yeah, he's, he's correct. They're all alive still. <laughs> so, I'm so not sure that, that means his plans have always worked perfectly, but okay. <laughs> In the jailer's office, the doctor is harassing the poor jailer once again. He wants to talk to Lemaitre, and it's urgent. He's convinced that Barbara is a manger of that dangerous traitor's party. He says that she'd die first rather than betray her friends, but... If there were only some way of using her, if only we could get through to her. And the jailer says, well, if she were to escape, she could be followed. Well, she'd meet these traitors, then we'd arrest them. The doctor, uh, who has, of course, prodded him on to this, mm-hmm. this idea, says, yes, of course. Now, why didn't I think of that? <laughs> While they're talking, Barbara comes out of the room where they were meeting. She sees no one's around and... She's off. Meanwhile, we get a quick cut to uh, Jules' house. He's looking for any of the companions, and none of them are there. Meanwhile, in the church crypt, where Ian is chained up, Leon is giving his little mini-monologue. He explains that he's been loyal to the revolution from the beginning. And he says, and this will somewhat support something Barbara says later on, he says, If you'd known what France was like six years ago, before the Bastille, you'd understand. Yeah, and I have to admit, even though I think a long time ago I read the Dickens book about this and everything, I'm not sure I have a real sense of what life was like for the average person under the royalty in France. I have a lot of problems (laughs) with their approach (laughs) to fixing things. I don't really know (laughs) how I'd feel about how it was before that. Yeah, there's probably some truth in the little lecture that Barbara gives down the road. But anyway, we'll we'll save that for when it <laughs> pops up. Leon uh, recalls that Jules had said Webster, the man who died in the cell with Ian, he had given him a message to give to Sterling. Ian says that's true enough, but he can't recognize Sterling. He's never seen the guy. I think Leon made a strategic mistake in all this, and we don't know why. He should have just claimed to be James Sterling so Mm. that Ian would tell him 
you know, what was needed. So we have no idea why he didn't think of that, but it would make sense. Yeah. Yeah. If, if he had thought of it, that's the key there is if he had thought of it. You, know, you can't always think of every clever ruse. <laughs> <laughs> Leon wants to know Ian's story and Ian says, uh, you wouldn't believe it. Says, Let me be the judge of that. <laughs> and Ian finally promises that he will tell the truth. He says, uh, he says, yes, I swear it. Uh, he goes on to say, <laughs> this is a very amusing line and it's, mm -hmm. it's particularly amusing because it's, it's true. He says, I flew here with three friends in a small box. When I left England, it was 1963. <laughs> well, I bet, uh, Leon's patience seems to be pretty much exhausted uh, because he snaps his fingers, which seems to be the signal for a soldier to raise his bayonet and presumably give Ian a good sticking with it. But we don't find out because Ian told the truth and the truth shall set you free. And Jules appears as if by magic and he orders Leon to release Ian. And then there's little action sequence, which in the animation was was a little a little tricky for me to follow. From what we saw in a previous episode, where the action was also a little weird, even though it was live action, they were having some trouble with the action scenes in this in this story. So it may not have looked yeah. any better in the live action. Yeah, yeah, this could just be a, an accurate reproduction of what actually was filmed. Jules he shoots one of the henchmen, one of the soldiers. Then he has his pistols empty. These are the ones that you have to manually reload with a ramrod after each shot. So then he tosses his pistol at Leon and knocks him down. <laughs> and this reminded me, I'm a fan of the John Wick films. I've watched some of the documentaries on the Blu-rays for those. And they talk about the fact that actually it's totally legitimate if you have an empty gun or even a knife and you throw it at somebody. It, first of all, if you have a gun and it's empty, you might as well throw it at someone because it might help. Mm -hmm. If you have a knife and you throw it at someone, I mean, we have the idea that you're trying to stick it in them, but it's probably not going to stick in them. But most of the time you're just knocking them <laughs> with the handle of the knife and that's a totally legitimate combat technique. So, you know, mm -hmm. what, what Jules was doing here was completely appropriate. <laughs> yeah, makes sense. He couldn't fire it, may as well do something with it. Yep. So there's more fighting. He kicks away a musket from a soldier. Leon gets up, and he has two flintlocks of his own. <laughs> Ian calls out a warning, and Jules turns, and he's using one of the soldiers as a human shield. And so both of Leon's shots that were intended for Jules, they end up hitting the soldier. Mm-hmm. Jules draws his backup pistol, and Jules says, you're the traitor. <laughs> and Leon says, it's you who is the enemy of the people. And Jules shoots him. Yep. So Ian's free. They have a brief little conversation. Jules reveals that Barbara and Susan were arrested. Jules wants to go back to his house. Ian thinks the soldiers will be there already, which is sensible enough. But Jules points out, if I know Leon, he will have wanted the satisfaction of arresting me himself. So they decide they're just going to take a chance. <laughs> In the prison, there's a knock on the door of Susan's cell, and it's grandfather, which is to say the doctor. Susan's delighted to see him. 
Then all of a sudden, someone's coming. The doctor says, shh, and he ducks away. In the jailer's office, the jailer is wondering the result of this brilliant plan to follow Barbara and capture all the traitors in one <laughs> fell swoop. But the doctor says he thought the jailer was going to follow her. <laughs> I like this. It's pretty <laughs> clever. Yeah. He says, uh, I'm hardly dressed in the proper clothes to go skulking after people now, am I? And the jailer says, I couldn't have gone. I can't leave the prison. And the doctor says, well, why didn't you say that in the first place? Well, did you? <laughs> the doctor maneuvers the jailer into admitting that it was his idea, which, of course, it was only indirectly because the doctor <laughs> prodded him into coming up with the idea. Mm -hmm. But the jailer is the one who's going to have his cojones in the fire for it. <laughs> The doctor says, don't worry, I'll cover up for you. But now he's working on the second part of his plan, getting Susan out of the prison. He says, now I think if we let her go, I personally could follow and then arrest all of them. This completely contradicts what he just said, where he said because of his costume, he wouldn't be able to follow somebody. <laughs> yeah, he's hardly dressed in the proper clothes to go skulking after people. But, yeah. uh, you know, maybe, maybe he... Would have some lie prepared for that. Well, I won't go skulking. I'll go strolling. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, the jailer won't have any part of it. He says, if that door is opened, I lose my head. To lose one prisoner is bad enough. To lose two would be the end of me. And, you know, the jailer has a point. <laughs> I'm oh, not yeah. sure his career would, would go very far after this. <laughs> Lemaitre seemed quite earnest in his promise about Madame Guillotine. And now... We get back to Robespierre's office, although with a new set of visitors here. It's Robespierre and Lemaitre, and the doctor is not with them this time. Robespierre says there's a meeting of the convention tomorrow, and he's gotten a warning that it may go kind of bad for him. And he says, mark my words, Lemaitre, if this plot is successful, tomorrow, the 27th of July, 1794, would be a date for history. <laughs> and I'm going to call historical fanboyism on this because <laughs> people talking about tomorrow don't usually say what year it's in. <laughs> so <laughs> he's clearly <laughs> saying, this is a significant year from your history books. Remember this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Robespierre's guess is that Deputy Paul Barras is at the forefront of the rebels, as he says. He thinks that Barras is leaving Paris tonight for a meeting, and he's curious about what that could be. Pretty sure that it's related to the planned upheaval tomorrow at the convention. So Lemaitre is to go check that out. Robespierre has a line that brought a <laughs> smile to my 12-year-old mentality. It's, Barras is your responsibility. <laughs> I'll leave that to you. Lemaitre <laughs> <laughs> asks, against which member is the indictment being brought, citizen? Robespierre says, against me, Lemaitre, against me, Robespierre. Now, he could have <laughs> mentioned that at the very beginning of the conversation, but I guess he just needed a little kicker to wrap it all up. Yeah, with. he clearly wanted a dramatic ending. And I'll also mention this Barras guy is an interesting historical figure, and we'll talk more about him later, but yes. Okay. Just outside the office, Lemaitre whispers a few things to a guard who's standing out there. They're going to be arranging their pursuit of Barras. And then we get back to Jules's parlor, where Jules, Barbara, and Ian are all there. 
Barbara was quite impressed with the doctor's getup. Says he's <laughs> dressed up as if he was running the revolution. From what I could gather, half the people there take orders from him. Ian says, that sounds like the doctor, all right. They're talking about Susan then, and Barbara says she'll be along later, and, and Barbara herself just walked out. Ian says, I don't know how he gets away with it half the time. <laughs> Barbara says, the doctor will be here soon, so no doubt they'll get the whole story several times. They're really, uh, they're getting more comfortable with cracking on the doctor. They may yeah. have developed a fondness for him, but. They also recognize some of his foibles. <laughs> yeah, as you say, it's a fair cop. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Barbara asks about Leon, who she apparently has an interest in. And Jules says, he's dead, Barbara. I killed him. He points out that Leon was the traitor we were looking for. He deserved to die. He was a traitor. Barbara goes into mm. a little little lecture at this point. Well, it's interrupted with conversation from the others, but the overall effect of it is a, is a lecture, to me at least. Barbara says, he was a traitor to you. To his side, he was a patriot, or patriot, as the British right. say. Ian argues, Jules is our friend. He saved our lives. He points out that while Jules shot Leon, it could just as easily have been Ian who had to shoot him. She wasn't there, but somehow she feels like they didn't actually need to kill him. Yeah. I'm not sure if she's objecting to the necessity of killing him, but she seems to me to be objecting to the notion that he was utterly a traitor. Mm. You know, like she says, to his side, he was a patriot. Ian mentions that in his view, it was necessary for him to die. Barbara says, I know all that. Then she says, this is a very interesting quote to me. She says, The revolution isn't all bad. Neither are the people who support it. It's changed things for the whole world. And good, honest people gave their lives for that change. It did change things for the whole world, and I made a list of a few things that it changed. <laughs> they introduced a wacky calendar, but that didn't live long after the revolution. So what was wacky about this? I'm not familiar with this. Well, they started everything with year one as the beginning of the revolution <laughs> and they renamed all the months and that uh, it was just, it was a, a solution in search of a problem, I think. <laughs> okay. Not only had they seized all the properties of the Catholic church, but they replaced that religion of the people, which I'm not saying that is necessarily the religion of the people, but that was what the French people tended to believe at the time. They replaced it with the cult of the supreme being, and that didn't last long after the revolution either. Mm. If I remember correctly, I read a, just a little bit about it, and I, I think it was pretty much eliminated with the death of Robespierre. He seemed mm. to be the big figurehead or the big spirit behind it. And then one of the big changes that's still around is the horrible, awful metric system, <laughs> which we still have around today, and it's overdue for eradication. But anyway, in, her, in Barbara's <laughs> mind, all these changes, they may not have all been good changes, but they were changes. You know, she's, she's trying to see the other side of things. Mm -hmm. As we saw back with the Aztecs, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She's sticking to her pattern anyway. That's, that's fair. Ian says, well, he got what he deserved. And uh, Barbara says, you check your history books, Ian, before you decide what people deserve. Which, uh... <laughs> 
sounds like it should be a pretty snappy line to me, having just been imprisoned by Leon and nearly uh, bayoneted by one of his soldiers. You know, it seems to me she's saying, don't trust your own lying eyes. Check your history books. <laughs> yep. So this little confrontation, we cut away from it, and we're back at Susan's cell. The doctor's talking to her through the bars and the window on the door. He says, now look, get down on the floor behind this door and don't move. They're going to try the old missing prisoner routine. Yells for the jailer, 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 the young girl, she's gone. <laughs> she's gone behind the door. Yeah. And the jailer comes and looks dutifully. He's fumbling for his keys, and he looks through the window, and sure enough, she's nowhere to be seen. And the doctor, <laughs> to add insult to injury, it's his own bottle of booze that the doctor knocks him out with. <laughs> so now Susan's free, and they turn around, and Lemaitre is once again standing there waiting for yeah, him. Yeah, he He's has an just, annoying habit of doing that. <laughs> yeah, the guy's timing is impeccable. So Lemaitre calls for guards. The jailer comes to pretty quickly, and he's tattling on the doctor. doctor says, oh, spare your breath, please. I'm quite capable of explaining the situation <laughs> myself. And Lemaitre says he thinks it's about time that he and the doctor had a talk. So they go into his office. The doctor starts insisting on things, and Lemaitre says, you're not in a position to insist on anything. <laughs> The doctor says, position, sir, do you realize who you're talking to? <laughs> Lemaitre replies, not yet, but I intend to find out. Yeah, he, so clearly he knows the doctor's not really the guy from this province. <laughs> yeah, he shows something to the doctor. He says, do you recognize this citizen? And it's his ring, of course. The doctor engages in a bit of bald-faced mm -hmm. lying here. He says, no, should I? <laughs> Not the greatest judgment. And we see over and over again, <laughs> the crew of the TARDIS chooses to lie about things that tells the person they're talking to that they're lying to them, <laughs> which then makes their life harder. So this is a good example of that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Although I do give the doctor points for sticking to his guns. I mean, he's going to play <laughs> this role out to the last bitter drop here. Then Lemaitre brings out the doctor's original outfit, his snappy coat and all nine yards, the plaid pants. And these, they're yours, aren't they? He says, given in exchange for those rather splendid clothes and the insignia of a regional provincial deputy. The doctor, once again, is, is really just sticking to his guns. He says, <laughs> do you know that's the biggest fairy story I've ever heard in my life? <laughs> and, of course, it's utterly true. But, oh, well. Lemaitre, is, uh, he has some perspective on the whole thing. He says, well, the way things are going, I need friends even if they're enemies. <laughs> I'm not quite sure what that means, but it sort of makes sense in this situation. <laughs> the doctor points out he could have just walked out any time he wanted. And Lemaitre says, and left your granddaughter? He goes further to say he was just assuming that, but he's obviously right. <laughs> now, Lemaitre wants to know who this Jules Renan is or where he is, and he says, I think he used his hideout. Either you know where it is or your granddaughter does. Doctor says, I've never met the man, and I believe that's true. I don't think he has mm, met him yeah. up to this point. Mm. But he goes on to say that if you think I'm going to betray him, then you're a very poor judge of character. <laughs> 
Back at Jules's house, Ian and Barbara are talking while Jules has gone out to look down the street for the, you know, the doctor and Susan, who they're expecting. Barbara tells Ian that she wanted to apologize to Jules. She says, I'm so sick and tired of death, Ian. We never seem able to get away from it. That's a pretty fair comment. I mean, you know, living in 1963 London, they probably didn't really run into a lot of death from day to day. Mm -hmm. And now they're, ever since they boarded the TARDIS, their lives have been full of it. So I can't blame her for having that attitude. Jules is back and says there's no sign of the doctor and Susan. Barbara starts to apologize for what she said earlier. And Jules is understanding. You said because of lay on the man. Yes, I know. It may be intimated here that he understands they were kind of getting attached to one another. Mm -hmm. But he says he did what he had to do because of what Leon represented. He says, do you ever wonder why I'm doing these things? Ian guesses that it's because he was an aristocrat before the revolution. But Jules says, no, I have no title or position. I belong, well, in the middle. But I hate to see order thrown out of the window like so much dust. There can be no loyalty or honor where anarchy prevails. Mm -hmm. So he's trying to give an accounting of his uh, philosophical stance on the subject. Certainly there has been some disorder since the revolution came mm. to power. <laughs> disorder and not a few ruling heads. Yep. He goes on to say there are only two sides today, Barbara. Those who rule by fear and treachery and those who fight for reason and justice. Anyone who betrays these principles is worse than the devil in hell. <laughs> so... He is not bending on his principles here. At this point, the doctor comes in finally. He's made it to the hideout at last. Except he enters with Lemaitre. At which point Barbara says, Lemaitre. And Jules says, your friend has betrayed us. <laughs> That's the end of the episode. Dun dun. <laughs> and next up will be episode six. Prisoners of Conciergerie. Oh, yeah. Practicing the pronunciation there. <laughs> Trying to get it right. <laughs> I, I had to look it up. You know, I'm used to obviously being in lots of hotels to so the phrase concierge, so I assume mm, yeah. there's a relation there. Right. <laughs> we came alone, my boy. We made a bargain. Let him speak. He holds Susan prisoner. What can you have to say to us? Please, I come as a friend. A friend? Ian will tell you that what I say is true. I will? Well, surely you realize that your escape from prison was arranged. I saw to it that you got the key, and I took care of the jailer. Why? Why should you do that? I was certain in my own mind that Webster gave you a message to deliver. You had to have the opportunity to deliver it. Unfortunately, I don't have enough time to wait now. I had to collect. Collect? Yes. I am James Sterling. So in this episode, we're back to live action. And I, I have mm -hmm. to say, I'm glad that this <laughs> was because, I mean, the animation, it was neat and it's, it's a good effort. It, it, it made them watchable, but it's definitely, I've grown fond of these actors, especially mm. the main cast. And mm. it, it's fun to see how their faces change and so forth. <laughs> so it's good to be back. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. So we're in the house, we've had this dramatic entry by the doctor and Lemaitre, 
and Jules saying dramatically, your friend has betrayed us. Now, here's the thing. He says your friend has betrayed us. Maybe someone's going to bring out a gun. Maybe they're going to have a fight. No, they all stand still for the next 20 seconds while the credits <laughs> roll. They're all just paralyzed by shock. That's what it is. <laughs> yeah, so it's a little <laughs> bit of an anticlimax. <laughs> <laughs> but then an argument ensues, and the doctor says, listen to Lemaitre. He's holding Susan prisoner. And Lemaitre says, please, I come as a friend. And to prove it, he says to Ian, surely you realize your escape from prison was arranged. I saw to it that you got the key. <laughs> and I'm, I'm going to call BS on this because the <laughs> keys got stuck in the door. He didn't arrange that. <laughs> yeah, he might be kind of taking advantage of the situation here. <laughs> <laughs> and then Lemaitre really brings down the house. He says, I am James Sterling. <laughs> And is it so surprising? You must have already decided that to have any use, I'd have to hold some position of authority in society, which is fair. Mm -hmm. Jules is like, well, if you're this big deal English guy, then why weren't you already in contact with me? And Lemaitre says, I didn't contact you because I prefer to work alone and I don't know who I can trust. And mm -hmm. I didn't know if I could trust Ian, so I couldn't tell him who I was. The doctor is very single-minded here in, in a good way, right? All he cares about is Susan is in this prison and he wants her released. Mm -hmm. And Lemaitre says, look, she's already gotten out of the prison and gotten captured again. So you know, I'll help you if you'll help me, which I guess is a reasonable trade. Yeah. And Lemaitre wants the message that Ian had for James Sterling, which is him. <laughs> <laughs> Ian tells Lemaitre, it's funny to have this be the simplicity of the message after all this time. You're supposed to return to England immediately. They want the info you have. <laughs> Seems like somebody could have wrote that on a piece of paper or something. I don't know. But, okay. <laughs> but Lemaitre does say, look, there has to have been more than that. The prisoner in your cell must have said more than that. And Ian says, well, he mumbled a few words. I don't know. I can't remember what they were. I'd be in the same boat if he had mumbled some words at me. <laughs> right. And Lemaitre says Robespierre has ordered him to follow a fellow named Paul Barras. And I looked this up, and it turns out Paul Barras is a historical figure, had a really fascinating history. In fact, at one point, he was supposed to go and join some battle or something, and he got shipwrecked. And even though he was shipwrecked, he still got himself to his destination and completed his task so he's mm. obviously a pretty impressive guy mm. the shipwreck could be the reason for what we'll find out in just a moment here good point yep and he also was part of government and he voted for the execution of king louis the 16th so he's he helped create our current situation mm. and ian says webster did speak of brass he said something about a meeting, something about a sinking ship. So let's get to what you were saying, right? That mm. I don't know that the writer, Dennis Winter, was, was thinking this, but if he was, he was really, really being clever. Mm. And then Ian says, no, the sinking ship, that was it. And as soon as he says the sinking ship, Jules says, well, there's an Ian called the sinking ship, as if he, if he, if Ian had only said a sinking ship, he wouldn't have made this connection, but okay. <laughs> And they all realize, oh, Brass must be set up to have a meeting at this inn. Lemaitre says, look, once we know what that's about, I can return to England and give them a full report. 
Barbara asks Lamatra, do you know who Bras is meeting? Lamatra says, no, but whoever he is, he could be the next ruler of France. We're going to get a few little hints here as we go along <laughs> what that means. Now, Lamatra says he can't go to the end because he would be recognized. But Barbara and Ian could spy on the meeting. And Jewel says he'll help Barbara and Ian do this. Lamatra starts to give him a bunch of advice on what he exactly he should do. And Jewel shuts him down and says, you know what? I know what I'm doing. Okay. <laughs> and now we get an exterior shot of the moon at night and it starts raining heavily. And then we're in the interior of the sinking ship in and Barbara is dolled up as a waitress and she's serving Jules as if he's a patron of the inn. Jules lets her know that he's bound and gagged the innkeeper and he'll be found once they've all left. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, this set for the tavern, I like it. It's, you know, it's one of the places where the typically claustrophobic atmosphere of Doctor <laughs> Who sets, at least in this season, I don't know what the future holds, but that closed-in atmosphere really works here. It seems like a cozy mm -hmm. little place to have a beer or, or wine, as the case yep. may be. I agree. Seems very realistic. So Barbara goes to a back room where the meeting is going to occur, and Ian is in there drilling a hole in the wall so they can listen from the bar area into the back room. And they're close to closing, and a man with a sash comes in. So, you know, the sashes indicate status or government mm -hmm. status. And Ian says, you must be the citizen who ordered the room. Come this way. Takes him to the back room, and this is Barras, and he inspects the room, looks behind the curtains, really wants to make sure nobody is spying on them. Barbara comes in, asks how many there are going to be so she can get wine. He tells her just the one. The rest of the customers leave. Jules goes outside, I guess, so he doesn't get seen. Hmm. We hear a horse outside, and then a man comes in with a scarf covering his face, so we can't tell who he is, and he goes immediately into the back room. Barras greets him and says, well, I'm delighted you could get here, General. So, who could this be? And the new guy checks out the room, and he also leaves the room to look around the rest of the inn, but now he's taken off his face covering and Ian sees him. And Ian says yeah. to Barbara, it's Napoleon, Napoleon Bonaparte. Yeah, and it, it was a clever move on Napoleon's part where as soon as he got into the room, you know, he waited a few seconds and then he checks outside. And fortunately, Ian and Barbara aren't just like standing next to the door with their ears up to it. <laughs> I don't get how Ian identified him. First of all, he's not short. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I noticed that right away. Yeah, he's he's taller than the other guy. But he does have a very distinctive hat, and I do think right. that that might be what he was thinking about. Yeah, he's he's got the bicorn that you always see him pictured in. <laughs> I don't know at that point if he would have had it or not. I'm going to trust the writer on this one. It yeah, but plausible. I'm going to say the odds that Ian would look at this guy for one second and identify him as Napoleon, <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> there were portraits of Napoleon, though, so if they were good yeah. enough portraits, he might have. Who knows? <laughs> so for story purposes, Ian has identified Napoleon for us. And Napoleon tells Barras that he's interested in his proposal, but he needs to know more. Barras says Robespierre will be arrested after tomorrow's convention meeting. And Napoleon says, will he? It won't be the first attempt. And Barras says, mm -hmm. but it will be the successful one. He'll be tried and executed before his friends have time to reorganize. Napoleon is naturally skeptical that this will succeed. 
And he says, Robespierre has a talent for commanding support. And Barras says, only if he's allowed to speak, and he won't be able to. And for anyone who has not watched this story, who's listening, if you're a history buff, then you'll probably prick up your ears because this line has some special meaning, as we shall <laughs> see. And Barras says, after Robespierre is out of the way, he is going to take control of the governing committee. But he needs Napoleon to help secure the support of the people because Napoleon is a hero in the people's eyes. And Napoleon says, I don't want to be a pawn. And Barras says, oh, you'd be more than a figurehead. And Napoleon says, yes, I know I would. I'm glad you appreciate it. <laughs> and Barras doesn't seem to pick up on the foreshadowing here. And I was thinking maybe they should have added an ominous music cue so that he could understand what was going on. Hey, you can't teach history. <laughs> <laughs> so Napoleon accepts the proposition, assuming Robespierre is overthrown. And he says, of course, if he's not overthrown, Napoleon will deny this meeting ever took place. Bras says, I shall summon you to Paris as soon as a suitable time has elapsed. And then Napoleon turns to the camera and says, I shall be ready to take over. <laughs> and again, this flies over Bross's head. Somebody needed to just give this guy a map about what was going to happen. And I looked this up, and historically, when Bross and Napoleon later inevitably fell out, the funny thing is, Bross started trashing Napoleon's reputation as a general. And in his memoir, he misstates facts to make Napoleon look bad. So he says, mm. you know, in this particular battle, Napoleon had a gazillion soldiers and he overcame a very small group. And it's not really a big deal when, in fact, really it, it was a big deal. And Napoleon had mm. a much smaller amount of soldiers. But he wanted to put the worst possible gloss on it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Interesting little note here. And this is from Wikipedia. <laughs> they said, so France was used to corrupt regimes. But the corruption of Barras's regime was considered so extraordinary that even for France, they thought he was corrupt. <laughs> and then also interesting, apparently he slept with anything that moved. Now, they're kind of used to that in France. But again, even for France, he kind of took it to an extreme. So that's Barras. Okay. I mentioned, okay, so we ended it on this shot of Napoleon saying to the camera, I shall be ready to take over. And then they do something pretty clever. They transition to a shot of Lemaitre in exactly the same position as Napoleon. And Barbara and Ian have been briefing him on what happened at the end. Lemaitre, now we know James Sterling, is very upset. And he says, Napoleon is ruler of France? And this really changes things for him. Because he was against Robespierre, obviously, in, in England's interest. But the idea of Napoleon being the ruler, that's a problem. Mm -hmm. And Barbara says, yes, he'd be one of three consoles. And Sterling says the thing that Barras couldn't figure out, he won't be content with that. <laughs> yeah. And it's a little odd at this point because Barbara, and in fact, the entire crew knows what's going to happen. They're all very familiar with the French Revolution. And they don't say anything at this point. But Sterling is freaked out thinking about Napoleon. He had no idea Barras was so strong that he could be making a deal with Napoleon. And Sterling sees Napoleon apparently as is a potential threat to England, and that's, that's valid. I mean, England ends up losing a lot of men to fighting Napoleon eventually further down the line. You know, it, it all ends up at, at Waterloo. So, yeah, Sterling is a little prescient here. I think. <laughs> so Sterling points out if Robespierre is arrested and taken to the prison, 
they aren't going to be able to get Susan out of the prison. Barbara says, well, you'd leave Robespierre as leader of France? Because she sees that Sterling is upset and clearly doesn't want Napoleon to be leader. And she's like, well, okay, but Robespierre. And both Jules and Sterling agree that, look, a military dictatorship is going to be worse than Robespierre. And Jules said it could happen. Now we get to Barbara knowing her histories. We know she's a history teacher, and she says it Mm. will happen. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The doctor doesn't care about any of this. He's only worried about Susan. He's going to go and try to save her from the prison. Sterling says, look, bring Barbara and Jules. And then he starts giving Jules advice for exactly how he should do this to get Susan out. And Jules just, you know, gives him the hand and says, look, I know what I'm doing. We'll take care of this. Mm -hmm. And Jules is going to bring a carriage to take them away from the prison. Sterling says, I'm going to bring Ian with me to the palace so we can see what's going on with Robespierre. For all we know, he's already been arrested, right? They don't know what the deal is. And then all of them will meet outside of the prison. As a viewer, we're at a very action-packed moment. A lot of stuff's going on. It's actually pretty exciting. Like, it all comes together. It all makes sense. It's just Mm -hmm. drawing us along in the story, which is kind of bad for us as podcasters because we want to make fun of things or, you know, comment on things. But it's really just like, oh, pretty good story. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) This is a really interesting moment because after Sterling, Ian, and Jules have left, Barbara is alone with the doctor, and she laughs in what I'm going to call a semi-hysterical manner. (laughs) (laughs) And the doctor is like, what's going on? And Barbara says, it's this feverish activity to stop something that we know is going to happen. Robespierre will be guillotined no matter what we do. And this is an interesting follow-up to the whole Aztec thing where she was trying to change history, and she's now clearly accepted you can't change history. Yeah, yeah, she learned her lesson. (laughs) And the doctor says, we can't stem the tide, but at least we can keep from being carried along with the flood. (laughs) Now we switch to the palace. Robespierre rushes into his office. He's clearly upset. He starts collecting some papers, and then he grabs a gun out of a drawer. He then runs over and locks the door, but there are people outside the door and they break it down very easily. And they come in and they say they have papers issued by the governing committee so they can arrest Robespierre. <laughs> and now I know this is your favorite part, so <laughs> what you <laughs> It says, oh, don't be fools, citizens. Oh, don't be fools, citizens. Or, uh, as I like to say, you fools. You fools. <laughs> Yep. And then he goes into this speech to the people around him about how the governing committee will never succeed. And within hours, he'll be as powerful as ever. And then he goes on and on. Meanwhile, James Sterling and Ian come running up to the door outside and they hear a shot ring out. And then Robespierre is dragged out and he's holding his bloody jaw. They shot him in the jaw. And this is actually what happened. And it was very intentional. They knew if he talked, he could talk people into things. So they chose not to kill him, but they chose to make it so he could not talk, which I think is really <laughs> fascinating. Yeah, good strategy. And Sterling is annoyed that Ian hadn't let him go in to try and save Robespierre. But now Ian points out their problem is that Robespierre is being taken to the prison. And Ian says, it's up to the doctor now to save Susan. And we switch to near the prison. The doctor and Barbara are outside. A storm is starting up, very appropriate. 
The doctor says he'll go in and get Susan while Barbara waits out here for Jules to bring the carriage for them. So the doctor goes into the prison and the jailer is there with a couple of his colleagues and they're having a drinking party and the jailer, rather drunk as usual, is making a toast and he says, enough with the revolution. (laughs) So (laughs) as one of the people who's really helped get a lot of people killed, apparently he was not a fan all along, we now learn. (laughs) The doctor comes in and the jailer says, you, you came back. And the doctor says, I can see you did not expect me. (laughs) It's kind of fun. (laughs) And the jailer says, I'm glad you came because I have a score to settle with you. And he rubs the back of his neck. Of course, the doctor, their last interaction had been the doctor knocking him out using his jug of wine. Oh, yeah. This jailer's head must just be constantly sore by now. (laughs) That's true because Ian had knocked him out at an earlier point. And now we get a Billy Flub, which is, you know, like, actually, William Hartnell has been doing really good in this story. He's been really on top of it. (laughs) But... Here we get one of those. He says, I see you haven't heard the nerve. (laughs) (laughs) And it turns out they have heard the nerve that Rope's fear has been captured. The doctor says, but you haven't heard that Lemaitre has been shot. And now we're going to deal with this accomplices. And the jailer says, who are you? And the doctor dramatically says, he's been part of the plan all along. He came along as a high-ranking official to ensure Rope's fear's downfall. And the doctor has a nice little uh, bit here because uh, <laughs> as he's talking, he sweeps the side of his cloak up to his shoulder and leaves it there about five <laughs> seconds or so. And then he sweeps it down again and just a little flourish. And uh, yeah, it apparently was the only reason for bringing it up <laughs> so that he could bring it back down. <laughs> yeah. And I mentioned previously, cloaks will be kind of a part of his look over time here. Yep. Uh, <laughs> And now this is another case of the doctor being clever. He said, you know, because he's claiming Lemaitre has been handled, he says the jailer was Lemaitre's accomplice and he demands that he be arrested. And now the jailer's drinking buddies who just up to now have been totally cool with him immediately turn on him and grab him to arrest him. So, uh, no good having friends. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The revolution is not really conducive to uh, mutual trust, I think. <laughs> and the doctor says, perfectly reasonably, that the jailer's been plotting with Lemaitre and he worked against the doctor. And then the jailer points out, also reasonably, that the doctor had whacked him over the head <laughs> and <laughs> that the doctor's role was a secret, so how could he have known? And the doctor says he has a point. And then he says, I can't decide whether you're a rogue or a halfwit or both. <laughs> <laughs> and the doctor sends the jailer's colleagues away And he says, I find this a little bit funny. He says, well, we're looking for a new jailer. You can serve as the jailer in a temporary capacity, (laughs) which seems a little bit (laughs) odd. Like he wants this guy put away, but on the other hand, he's going to let him keep his job for a little while. Okay. (laughs) And then he says, you need to prepare the cells for Robespierre and all of his friends that we're going to be putting into jail. And it's pretty clear from that, that one of the things they're going to have to do is release the current prisoners to make space. And the jailer gives the doctor the keys so that he can release the prisoners. So what the doctor's been looking for all along so he could save Susan. (laughs) We go back outside. Barbara is there. The storm is going on. There's a commotion in the distance. They see Robespierre being taken into the prison. And then Ian and Sterling show up. They're still waiting for Jules to show up with the carriage. And then Jules arrives, <laughs> what I'll describe as they're using coconut sounds for the horse because clearly they've given up on the idea of having a live horse on the set for this episode. Understandable. 
Meanwhile, the doctor lets Susan out of her cell. Yeah, she has her 1963 <laughs> hairstyle and there's not a hair out of place. <laughs> Interestingly, there's a very famous hair designer who had designed her hair. So hmm. Maybe they couldn't allow it to be uh, unkempt. <laughs> so Robespierre is now dragged into the prison and the jailer is very ceremonious to him. He says, Citizen Robespierre, this is indeed an honor. <laughs> And, of course, Robespierre is still holding his jaw. He can't talk. And one mm -hmm. of the people who brought him in says, he can't answer you back. He tried writing us a letter, but too bad none of us can read, eh? <laughs> <laughs> Off to the side, the doctor says to Susan, everybody lived in fear of that man yesterday and today. Today, not so much. <laughs> yep. So outside... Jules' life has now been turned upside down, and he wonders who's going to be the next ruler. <laughs> and Ian says into his ear, remember the name Napoleon Bonaparte. <laughs> and Jules mm. says, the Corsican ruling France? <laughs> I don't know what all the regional disputes were at the time. <laughs> it's a little amusing. I think Corsica might be an Italian island, actually. Mm. I'm not sure, but I think so. Mm. And now Sterling and Barbara are talking to each other, and I swear they're making googly eyes at each other. And again, I don't want to cast aspersions at Barbara, but she does seem to really get into whoever she's talking to at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> Sterling says he wants Barbara to come with them. Barbara says, no, we must travel our way. And Sterling says, Barbara, who are you really? Where do you all come from? And now the doctor and Susan show up. And the crew rushes off to the carriage that Jules has waiting. And Jules says to Sterling, come, Lemaitre, we mustn't keep them waiting. I hope they have a pleasant journey. I hope they have a pleasant journey. So do I. But to where, Jules? Funny. I get the impression they don't know where they're heading for. Come to that. Do any of us. And now we've seen this multiple times. It happened in the Sensorites, et cetera, where these side characters had this little bit of philosophical musing about the Doctor Who crew. <laughs> <laughs> so I come to South Park where, uh, where Kyle says, you know, I learned something today. Boy, I'm sure glad that's over with. Me too. Yeah, but you know, I learned something today. <laughs> And now they travel by way of map montage and stock footage to the TARDIS. And it must have taken the actors a long time to get into position because we have like a solid minute of montage and stock footage. It just <laughs> keeps going. Eventually we see the TARDIS, then we see them inside the TARDIS. And they have a debate about whether they could have told Napoleon something or written him something that would have changed history. And Susan says it wouldn't have made any difference. He'd have forgotten it or lost it or thought it was written by a maniac. At this point, she puts on the doctor's fancy hat with its tricolor ribbon <laughs> and the feathers and all that. Uh, it's a fun little thing because mm -hmm. she's been mostly sick and depressed and mm -hmm. uh, aching back and splitting head throughout the whole storyline. So she gets at least one little fun, whimsical moment, which yep, I, I, I always like to see that. Now, I'll have a little more to say about that in a moment, I think. But. Okay, yeah, I agree. I think that's good. And Barbara finally says, I suppose if we tried killing with a gun, the bullet would have missed him. <laughs> and now we have this awkward transition. So clearly they made a decision. This is the end of our first season. We need a very meaningful moment at the end with a meaningful speech from the doctor. And we suddenly switch to this shot of space. 
And we go into this very echoey <laughs> end of the season, speechifying for the doctor. And we will end our episode with that. So our listeners will hear it. <laughs> what do you think about this? Yeah, it's, uh, it struck me as a bit much. I mean, it's not, <laughs> it's not awful, but one minute they're all standing there talking, which is how I like to see them, you know, mm. just sort of having a pleasant conversation with each other. And then all of a sudden it goes into Carl Sagan's cosmos <laughs> and, uh, I don't know. Fair description. <laughs> We get the title of the next story, Planet of Giants. Mm -hmm. And I'm just going to put a pin in this to say to you, you should remember whatever images the title Planet of Giants evokes. And when we get back to Doctor Who, we'll see how that title actually holds up to the story that we see. <laughs> no, ah, okay. Yeah. 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 Consider me intrigued. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so let's talk about this story as a whole. One of the things I think is really new in this story, and I think really positive, is just how clever the Doctor is. I mean, episode to episode, he keeps just using his wits to solve problems. In the very first episode, there was a rock-clearing gang, and he had to figure out how to deal with that. And then he met the shopkeeper, and he had to get his costume and everything. And then he was bluffing the prison warden all the way to the very last episode where he's still bluffing the prison warden to release all the prisoners. And I just, I really enjoy him as just using his intelligence to solve problems. Yeah. You've indicated that this becomes a regular thing with him, and I think that will be all to the better, if so, because it definitely adds a new fun wrinkle. You know, even the earlier episodes had a lot of fun things in them, but I, I like this aspect of it. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing more of that. Yeah. As with the Aztecs, we have another kind of challenging topic where Barbara in particular is saying, look, there's more than one side to this, and we can't just assume certain stereotypes yeah and she's right one of my favorite professors uh he was a history professor <laughs> wilson hoffman he he pointed out in class one time that people say there's two sides to every story but there usually aren't two sides to every story there's usually dozens of sides <laughs> or you know as many people as were involved in the story that number of sides he said it better than that but <laughs> you get the idea <laughs> In that aspect, she's she's right. But then again, I remember the conversation from History of the World Part 1, where <laughs> Count de Monet says, I've come on the most urgent of business. It yes. is said that the people are revolting. You said it. They stink on ice. <laughs> Did the revolution change things for the better? I mean, we, we have no way of knowing. I mean, I'm sure there's probably plenty of alternative history novels out there that speculate on how things could have gone differently, but we only really know the world that we have as a result. I don't know. I've, I've heard some bad things about it, but that's not to say that the people doing the revolting didn't have some justifications <laughs> for it. So I don't right. know. One thing I especially wanted to mention, and it didn't really occur to me until after I'd watched all the episodes and I was thinking about them. With Ian, Ian's actor, taking his vacation during all this, this storyline, these six episodes, really would have been the perfect opportunity to give Susan's character a chance to really come forward. Mm -hmm. And instead, they made her sick through pretty mm -hmm. much the whole thing. 
I just have to wonder. I mean, I, I enjoy her when she's having fun. You know, she every mm-hmm. now and then, and you know, you've mentioned to some extent she can almost seem too childish sometimes. And yeah, there's there's a point to that, but it's still it's still fun to see her having fun. Mm-hmm. So I have to wonder, was she just actually sick during the production, or maybe there's some executive who had the knives out for her? <laughs> because it, otherwise, she's so underutilized in these whole six episodes, and it seems almost there must have been some deliberate decision to just leave her out in the yeah. cold. Well, a couple stories down the line, we'll see how that turns out. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> yep. So let's talk about our reaction. So I'm going to, you know, here's here's my reaction where I try to influence you before you make your final <laughs> judgment. <laughs> All right. And I hope you've remained open-minded. <laughs> oh, okay. Fair enough. I think almost more than any other story in this first season, this is just really solid, really interesting. The actors are good. The sets are good. There's almost nothing wrong with this. And the way I would contrast this with my other favorite story, which is the Aztecs, is that the only difference is they don't have a character as outstanding as Itoxel. It's really... Clitoxel. Clitoxel. <laughs> yeah, I can't say whatever. Uh, they don't have a character as outstanding as Clitoxel to focus on. And also, in that story, Barbara got to play such a major role that you got to really, really get to know one of the characters in a way that, you know, it's not quite true here. Mm-hmm. But other than those differences, I just think this is just a really interesting, exciting story, and there's absolutely nothing I can criticize about it. That's my feeling. Okay. So now, let's get to your reaction and judgment. <laughs> I'd say I I enjoyed it overall. I wasn't as engrossed in it as I have been in some of the mm. other stories, and I'm not mm. I'm not sure what it is. Maybe maybe it's just that some of the conversations were long. Maybe mm. it's that I had the feeling that it was a six episode story for what should have been four or five episodes. Mm. 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 That's the story of Doctor Who, by the way. Yeah, that seems to be a general pattern emerging. And I think I'm especially vulnerable to that because the shows, when I watch TV shows, I tend to gravitate towards the ones that are dense, you know, like, hmm. uh, like say, Futurama or hmm. Deadwood. Those are shows where if you go out to the kitchen for a minute to get something from the refrigerator, (laughs) Mm. you know, you may have missed four or five things that were worth seeing. With Doctor Who, it's not a given that you're going to miss anything that was really (laughs) worth important. This just a little bit of mismatch. And that's not to say I don't like the show. It's just the pacing isn't always what I would like. Overall, with regard to this show, I liked Mm -hmm. it. I, I definitely... I don't know that for our hypothetical viewer who has never seen the show and we're going to pull him down to the couch and say, watch this. <laughs> I don't know that this would be for that viewer. Really? Um, but yeah. for somebody who's just interested in the show, I'd say, sure, it's good. Our lives are important, at least to us. But as we see, so we learn. What are we going to see and learn next, Doctor? Well, unlike the old age, my boy, our destiny is in the stars. 
So let's go and search for it. He was used to having rehearsal time in the theatre and having actors performing in a, a logical sequence of events in a perfectly normal play. And we were doing none of these things, and I think he just didn't understand what the hell was going on. His um, way of directing actors um, was limited. Oh, what's the use? I'll never get out of this dreadful place. Oh, you mustn't lose heart, Susan. I'm not going to fool myself. He never really seemed to give me any directions to how he wanted a scene played. He let me get on with it, but then he came up and criticised what I was doing. For instance, there was a scene where I was in prison. I was ill. I was about to be decapitated by the guillotine. And furthermore, there were rats and we were above a sewer. So I think I was entitled to be a little bit sad about the whole thing. <coughs> what is it? Rats! Rats! They must have smelt the food! Barbara, there's rats down there! He came up to me and he said, What you know to be so maudlin? And I said, Sorry, Henrik, didn't quite get that. So maudlin, you're so maudlin. And somebody came up and translated and said, He's saying, he's saying uh, he doesn't want you to be so maudlin. So maudlin, I said, Henrik, I'm all these things, you know, I'm, I'm about to be killed, I'm terrified, I'm ill. I think I'm entitled to be maudlin. <laughs> there you go, that was he. You fool! 